What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 21 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my main man, my co-pilot here, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, brother? Pumped up again this week. Hey, yeah. Nice and veiny. The veinage is pulsating as it should be, and uh, we hit the 21st episode. We're officially legal now. It's the Jay's lucky number, 21. So can't be more pumped up, man. We got a great show today. We're talking some road warriors and the usual, man. We've got the smorgasbord of topics. So looking forward to it. Hey, yo. Fucking right, man. As you said, dark side of the ring, road warriors. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about the very last two parts of the last dance, parts nine and ten. And, of course, a big one this week on our favorite segment, as we always say, Thursday Night Prime. We're talking Beyond the Law from 1993 with Charlie Sheen uh, in a biker flick, which is pretty cool. And also, of course, we're going to have some goofs for you this week as well. But, uh, you know, uh, how you doing, man? Good, man. You know, keeping up with the pandemic living. Um, You know, we're official here in Pennsylvania in the quote-unquote yellow phase, so... That's been interesting. I mean, nothing much, much has changed here in the Bajoras household. Uh, I'm able to work full now, um, precautiously. So uh, that's the biggest change, of course. Uh, I'm in full work mode, but you know, no big deal. It's it's good because I have that um, financial comfort again. Because uh, we were talking about on the pod, I was kind of working um, minimally uh, in the last few weeks, so that gets scary because I wasn't getting too much help from the stupid ass government you know all that goes we don't have to get into that but uh but yeah man things are going well the, the weather's been decent in pittsburgh so that that brings up the mood uh how's everything been with you in the last week hey yo yeah pretty much the same um just trying to get used to everything uh it's weird going to the yellow state which by the way uh while we're talking about it here which is super weird because it's like a thing that that not everything is open again some things have opened again um, but one thing that it's done, in my opinion, is brought people out of the fucking woodwork, which obviously people have been cooped up, so I kind of understand that to a degree, but it was really weird being out like over the weekend, and it's like, where is everyone going? Like, the, <laughs> most stuff is not, like, you're not going to a restaurant, you're not going to a bar, you're not going to the movies, the mall is closed, like, most stores are still closed here, like, what the hell are you people doing? Like, where are you going? I feel the same way because for my job, which is now essential, I I drive a lot, as you know. So covering the ground that I do, uh, I was observing the same thing, like all these people out. and You just kind of think in your head exactly what you were saying. Like, where are you headed? Like, where are you going? You you can't go to get your hair cut. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go get some beers at the bar. You can't go to a movie theater. You can't go You can go to the drive-in. Yeah, you can go to the drive-in, but I doubt it. Like you know, eleven o'clock on a Tuesday that you're heading to the, oh, exactly. the moon drive-in. So, so yeah, it's it's pretty weird. But like you said, I think a lot of people are cooped up. You know, especially specifically here in Pittsburgh, where like I mentioned, the weather's kind of breaking. You know, who knows? Maybe people are just going going for drives and things like that. And again, man, it's the usual thing. As long as people are, are being precautious and are social distancing still wearing their masks um, because it just goes back to what we've been preaching for for weeks and even months now with this whole situation, Ed. It's better safe than sorry. And um, like everybody's saying, we don't need to be rushing into this. We need to gradually get get back to the normalcy thing with this yellow face starting that. So, um, you know, as long as people are just, you know, driving out and about and and doing the right things, you know, of course, I – 
uh, I don't care, man. It's it's America. We're 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 a free country. You know, do do what you need to do. But um, it, it is pretty funny seeing like it was like Fridays the 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 yellow and it was almost like a green light. Motherfuckers are like, all right, I'm out. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, it's just it was crazy. Like I I had to go out anyway on Friday, um, and. It wasn't anything major, but I ended up doing a lot of driving. And one of the things I just decided to do before I went home was like just to drive around and see what's actually open. And that's when I was like really surprised and noticing like there's not a whole lot really functional at the moment. It's really weird. Like people are out like everything's normal, but it's far from it. Yeah, because other than um, the grocery stores, what other retail stores open? Because I wasn't even fully aware of that, but I know some more than were before the yellow uh, have opened but yeah man it's it's just bizarre to see people everywhere with not really a lot to do uh but nonetheless though i mean you know it's changing uh i guess uh, i'm just hoping at this point too i don't know you know how much you've actually thought about this too but it's uh it's gonna be weird to see what happens i mean hopefully everything can continue on the way that it's going now but i mean there's always a possibility that things get worse for a time period and it's kind of weird being in that that spot where you're just waiting. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, but now what? We just do this for two weeks and see where it goes from there. I think that's been the number one factor in this whole process, just from human nature. You hate to not have closure. You hate to have things hanging over your head. I mean, my, myself personally, I'm, I'm exactly that. Uh, I'm not the most organized person. I mean, you could call me organized chaos, but running small businesses and having a family and things like that, I'm, I'm somebody that does prepare. And the, the kind of up in the air kind of state is definitely the biggest thing that sucks about this. And, and like you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be kind of a wait and see kind of situation with the yellow phase to see if everybody does, you know, still keep up with the social distancing. Because like, for example, had like we were talking about it on um, my family and it's like, hypothetically, if the pools were open now, I mean, it's not past Memorial Day yet, but again, hypothetically, if the pools in Pittsburgh were open. I wouldn't be rushing there with my kids. You know, I wouldn't be going anytime soon. Same with like Kennywood or amusement parks or even the theater. We're, we're kind of, yep. again, I'm, I'm kind of on the safe, safer than sorry kind of way to look at it. So I'm not going to rush in, but you know, like we're talking about, it seems like a lot of people, you know, there's still people that don't fully believe it's, it's that's serious of a threat still. And then from what I've been reading um, from actual doctors, uh, come on people, re, you know, Research actual yeah, doctors, exactly. yep. <laughs> and the actual doctors are saying like this could be still a long term threat, and and of course there's not a vi- um, a vaccine yet, and things like that. So uh, unfortunately, even going into this yellow phase, we're still in that day to day kind of way to, that we have to look at things. It's just a day to day process still. Yeah, and that uh, that's not going to change anytime soon, as as far as anything I could see. Um, but, you know, it just is what it is. So we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And, uh, you know, it, which is weird because it, it is kind of a weird segue. But we said, uh, you know, speaking about doing the best that we can and everything like that, um, over the past weekend we saw that there was a whole glut of NFL players uh, that got into some trouble all on the same day um, in a bunch of really weird stories, like everything from DWIs to armed robberies and just really weird shit like that. Uh, and the reason why I brought it up that way is because it's stuff that I think comes in, you know, hand in hand. I I was thinking about this not too long ago and I forget who got in trouble, but it was something with a football player. 
And I thought, you know what, man? The longer this stuff lasts, the more you're going to see shit like this because guys aren't really doing their day-to-day shit. They're not working out. They're not, you know, going to practices. Like, OTA should have probably already started and shit like that. And they're not doing that kind of stuff. So a lot of these guys are just getting restless and weird. We said this wasn't a coincidence. I think it definitely correlates with that. And the the stories, like you said, vary. Um, Washington Redskins receiver Cody Latimer was in an incident uh, shortly after midnight where he was booked on charges of assault in the second degree, menacing, illegal discharge of a firearm, a few other things. Then um, two NFL cornerbacks, uh, Seattle's Quentin Dunbar and the Giants' DeAndre Baker, they both turned themselves in after uh, getting arrest warrants sent out for armed robbery with semi-automatic weapons and stealing like watches and valuables worth more than 60000 And um, as you mentioned with the DWI situation, that was uh, Bill's defensive lineman, Ed Oliver, who was arrested on, on DWI and unlawful possession of a weapon. And this all, all four of these incidents occurred on Saturday. So an ugly Saturday for the NFL um, in between the season here. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. I mean, you know, hopefully you don't see a lot more of that kind of shit. Uh, but nonetheless, man, it's, you know, the guys, you know, these are a lot of, uh, these are dudes with money. And, you know, like we talk about people just being stubborn and shit. And it's like, I'm sure people with money are probably up there too, because there's a lot of things that they do on a regular basis that they can't do right now. So I'm sure frustration starting to set in for them because, in a lot of situations, they can't really do the things that they're used to doing, especially being in the off season. You know what I mean? It's basically like being on your vacation and it's like you can't do anything. You know what I mean? So yep. for guys like that, that's probably frustrating. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but I'm just trying to explain the possible situation. Well, and it varies on the situation, but if you're accustomed to a certain style of living, and I don't know how this is affecting these guys in particular uh, financially, but, you know, we're not talking about top tier superstar NFL players either. Um, so, so who knows what the motivation is, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's, it's like we're, we're going to be bookending the show uh, after our small talk here, basically starting with some goofs, goofs or goofs here. But yeah, um, you would think that active NFL players being involved in some serious crimes, you know, complete goofballs. Um, we, we had a guy back in the day. Hey, and I'm sure you'll remember, uh, this individual, uh, one Bam Morris, um, who I, I, I believe like long into his career was like busted for drug traffic or uh, gun trafficking and weapon trafficking. Like it, his, um, trunk had like all these automatic weapons and stuff. And you're just like, and you're a multimillionaire living your dream basically. Like, why are you still involved in this? But there, there are certain guys that, as they say, you know, you, you can get the, um, the player out of the streets, but Uh, Some of these guys in particular, you can't get the streets out of the player. Yeah, it's just, you know, a lot of these dudes come from pretty wild backgrounds and shit, and it's not their fault, but, I mean, it's just, it's part of dealing with that that part of their life. Um, But moving on to some other stuff, too, in the world of NFL, there's been a lot of random shit going on with the Steelers, like, in the last week. Um, One of the things that, that, uh, it was like one of the first things that I heard was about James Harrison. There was a big story that came out. Uh, where he implied that after getting a hit, uh, there was uh, he was fined seventy five thousand dollars for uh, in a game years ago against the Cleveland Browns. That after the game, Mike Tomlin, the coach at the time, uh, basically walked up and gave him an envelope 
uh, implying that he paid the fine or gave him some money from the fine or maybe collected the pot from teammates to pay the fine or something like that. And, I, you know, we kind of talked about this off air a few times, and I know that there was an article uh, that I think was in the Tribune Review here in town by Mark Madden, um, who basically said the Steelers need to cut ties with James Harrison. And I don't like Mark Madden at all. You know that about me. Um, but I thought the article was spot on. Um, and they're absolutely right. This guy has constantly shit on the team, which I'll remind everybody, if you don't know this, uh, he no one gave him a chance. He was cut numerous times before he came to Pittsburgh. Um, granted, he was a great player when he played here. He was defensive player of the year. I'm not taking anything away from him on the field. Um, but then he left in free agency, went to the Cincinnati Bengals where he did nothing, uh, would like pseudo-retire a couple times, and then would come back and play for Pittsburgh. And one of the seasons he had was a really, really good season. Then they drafted T.J. Watt, and he was kind of phased out. But consistently since then, this dude is always on radio, TV, talking to anybody who will listen uh, about the Steelers, which is bizarre to me, but like enough, man. It's it's ridiculous. I just wish this dude would just go away. He's definitely putting a black eye on the organization that, uh, as you mentioned in your the preamble and build-up, you know, somebody that was passed on. He found a home here and became a legendary player. Uh, I mean, to me, one of the best Super Bowl highlights of all time. Um, Absolutely. You know, that run back against the, the Cardinals. And yep. this really got convoluted um, because I guess he was on um, one of Barstool's podcast where he said it, the Going Deep podcast. And he said, uh, quote, the gist thing Mike Tomlin ever did, he handed me an envelope after that hit on Massacoy. I'm not going to say what, but he handed me an envelope after that. But then he went on once everything kind of got viral and things like that and kind of retracted that and said, um, you know, Tomlin never had any sort of bounty gate. Um, Mike T never paid me for hurting anybody and things like that. And, and again, that just says, like, now you're backpedaling. Like, why cause all this bullshit in the offseason is, is beyond it, me, well, you know? Well, no, no, no. There's, there's a perfectly good reason, and I think this is part of the, the problem for me uh, concerning him is he's doing it for attention. Um, yeah, he's in that call. weird spot where, um, and Mark Madden hit on this in his, his uh, article, but he said that he doesn't have the personality to be like a television guy. Um, he's a bully, and it just seemingly, from the way that people talk about him and the way he's perceived and from what I see, he just comes across like a dick. Like, people are legitimately scared of him because he's a scary dude. I mean, he's huge, he's jacked up, and he's kind of a bully. Um, so he's trying to get attention for himself in the only way that he knows how, because no one wants to talk to him about anything else other than the Steelers. No one really wants to know his opinions about the game because he's not a, a an IQ guy, well, you know, the game, he's not a coach. He's not something, you know, like a Peyton Manning or someone like that just knows the game through and through. Um, but it's just, it's the only way this dude could bring attention to himself. And I also think too, and maybe I'm wrong here, but there's a little bit or a little piece of me that thinks that this dude wants to play again in some capacity. And it's just not going to happen. No, he he was on, um, he, he also went viral. I don't know if you saw it when he was pushing, I forget the amount of weight, but something ridiculous for his age. Cause he, 
he's definitely a beast. He's a strong motherfucker, that's for sure. No, he's disputing that. But, I mean, hey, the guy's nickname's Debo. So uh, what do you expect out of somebody named Debo? But this is very boneheaded. Um, it, it just sucks for, you know, the Steelers organization as a whole, specifically, of course, Mike Tomlin, uh, especially considering that everybody else is saying this never happened. I know Art Rooney II strongly disputed Harrison's initial claim. He said, I am very and certain. And so did... So did his agent, yeah, his advisor and agent, Bill Parisi. He said, absolutely not. Never happened. I would have known that. Um, he even said, James and I are still together. We were really close during our 18 years. He would have uh, said something along the way. I mean, it could be a case uh, going along with what you were saying, hey, Ed, where he's on this um, Barstool podcast, which is known to be kind of cut up and just yep. you know got carried away and that sort of thing and just realized the shitstorm that he caused. And that's why he's retracting everything. Um, but the bottom line is he just should have never, you know, um, just started this fire in the first place. It's ridiculous. And then also, too, it was uh, they, they showed some footage this past week and uh, Roethlisberger throwing the football. Um, obviously, he trimmed up the beard, which people were making a huge deal out of for whatever reason. Um but uh, I will say this, the, it's a small window of video, and I know that they could show us like the one good thing that happened and all that shit. I get it. But he looked pretty good throwing the football. I'm getting pumped up for, for the NFL, man. They're looking like they're definitely going to have a certain protocol in the season that is going to happen. So, um because before I was kind of like, I don't want to get my hopes up <laughs> for the NFL. Yeah. Because we're two huge NFL guys. But now it's now it's looking like that. So, yeah, I'm kind of starting to get pumped up. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see how Big Ben comes back from missing uh, pretty much the whole year last year. So, um, but yeah, so so far so good from the footage. Like you said, the, the media can kind of angle that and things like that. But, but I don't think so, man. I think Big Ben is um, – the, the vet that he is for a reason and you know the big question is going to be you know of course reacting from from the surgery but um all things considered i, th- I think so far so good so can't can't wait for the, the nfl season to start and this is just the the seeds kind of getting planted going into um this the summer slowly here yeah, and uh, time will tell on how, how all that works out. Uh, hopefully, as far as we go, we're hoping that it works out stupendously. And, uh, you know, but we'll have to see. Um, something interesting I saw uh, just today uh, as we record this, and uh, it's something that's pertinent to both of us. Um, 20 years ago today, uh, the album It's Dark and Hell is Hot by DMX dropped. And that kind of just took me back. Because of obviously that was such a big deal, like the year we graduated high school, so we're old. That's what I was gonna say. It just it's a complete total nostalgia thing, this this particular album, because we had an infamous place that we hung out, our group of friends, our senior year of high school, in quotes called the apartment. Simply the oh, yeah. apartment. And three of our buddies basically uh, straight after graduation in June of 1998, purchased a apartment in beautiful, scenic Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania. And two of the three guys that purchased it and paid the rent never even fully lived in the place. Uh, our buddy Gus soldiered through and, and pretty much lived there. And it just became, you know, we're, we're 18 years old. So it just became the hangout, party, story after story, crazy town the apartment days it's known for that but this was part of that soundtrack D- dmx yeah. it's dark and hell is hot you know it's just it's one of those things hey at any time i hear some of those songs you know rough riders and 
you know, even like I love the just the simple intro, you know, the, yep. the pump up intro. And anytime I hear that, it just it brings me right back. It's one of those things. I just remember the summer of 98 and the apartment days. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty memorable for us, but I just thought it was interesting to see that pop up like uh, just a couple hours before we recorded. I saw it and I was like, wow, you know what I mean? It's just because it's like, like at least as we get older anyway, I mean, there's good albums and stuff. I'm not trying to act like there's no good music anymore, but it's few and far between that you get stuff that really resonates with the time period that you're going through and that's one of the ones that really stuck out to me so i figured it'd be worth the worth it to bring it up here on the show um another thing i actually wanted to bring up um that's a, a really big bummer um is over the weekend apparently uh there was an incident with former wwe wrestler shad gaspar uh who was swimming uh with a son in California and they rescued his son as they got caught in the tide, but he wasn't rescued and is currently missing as we speak. And obviously, um, you know, when that happens, you know, like obviously we hope for the best, but it's usually not a good thing. Um, it's just a crazy story to hear about. And obviously, you know, that's heartbreaking. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, he's okay, but we'll have to wait and see as that goes too. And another personal side story with Ed and Jared's crazy personal lives, I actually had a tryout with WWE's developmental territory in 03, which at the time was in Louisville, Kentucky, called Ohio Valley Wrestling, OVW. And Shad Gaspard was uh, within that week-long tryout as well. So I got to know him a bit, and he was just a super cool guy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a smaller guy. That's one of the reasons I didn't make it in, in the, the big time of professional wrestling at, at 5'10", like 220-something. And Chad, Especially that at that time. Yeah, especially at that time. And Chad, uh, Chad is like 6'5", 260. And, dude, he, I body slammed him, you know, and it, it makes you feel like a warrior. And it's just so cool that somebody like that, you know, which is, which is obviously part of the business and things, but – um, it's just a memory that, that I won't forget. And this, this story is just so damn tragic. Uh, as a parent myself, um, TMZ had put up a video that he shared not too long ago uh, where he was saying um, how happy he was and proud he was to set up the life that he did coming from you know a pretty tough, tough background and things like that. And that was yep. just days before this happened. So it's just a gut-wrenching situation. And then on top of that, he was involved um, – a few years ago in stopping an armed robbery and mm-hmm. he put, he, he made sure that his son was saved by the lifeguards before he was. So this guy's a true real life hero. And, you know, I guess when he kind of was motioning for the lifeguards to, um, prioritize saving his son, uh, a second wave came and submerged him and he hasn't been seen since. And still to this day, um, we, we recorded the podcast on Tuesday afternoon. I was I was checking when we uh, brought up this topic, and he still at this point is missing. So uh, definitely from the What's Real uh, podcast, and and Jared here um, personally, um, my thoughts are definitely out to to Shad and his friends and family, and especially his wife and son. Just an awful story. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the other things that I look forward to over the weekend is the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. And uh, we're not going to get into all the details of everything, but there was some negativity surrounding the show last week going into it. And uh, 
you know, regardless, I was going to watch, uh, which I did. And I thought this was really cool. Um, so after the second movie, um, Joe Bob usually ends the show, if you guys aren't familiar, he does kind of like a joke and, you know, does an outro and everything. But this one was, was really different. And uh, he did this thing where, and the video's online of this if you guys want to check it out. But um, it's called, you know, basically Joe Bob's Keep Rolling Montage or Message. And uh, he essentially, it's kind of a love letter to filmmakers and trying to be a little bit of an inspiration to people who may want to work in that type of field. And it was really something else. Um, it was a really, really good moment for the show, and I thought it was a really good moment for Joe Bob um, to do it on the show. And uh, I immediately sent it to you like the next day um, because I figured it would be something really good to talk about here on the show uh, because it obviously would hit home personally with someone like you who makes movies and you know someone like me who's worked on movies, who appreciates the, the art form, and I, I'm just a big movie buff, as are you, the J. But, um, but this was really, really cool, I thought. I love this. Love, love, love this. It was um, motivating and inspiring because – as, as anybody can imagine, um, in independent filmmaking and just even just art in general, let's say, there are a lot of detractors. Uh, there's a lot of white noise. Um, there's a lot of outside influences and things you'll hear, things like that. And what Joe Bob was, was kind of saying was he was emphasizing, like, don't just say, like, I'm, I'm a mechanic that's trying to make a movie. Fucking buckle down, set your goals, start writing. You're a filmmaker. You're not a mechanic trying to make a movie. You are a filmmaker, you know, and that's inspiring stuff because you'll hear, you know, even even to this day, uh, I, you know, on, on the independent scene, um, you know, we've come a, a long way with Churchill Pictures and, and you'll still hear the chapters and, and you'll always get that. I mean, you know, look at um, not to divulge, but like Michael Jordan with The Last Dance, like how many people are talking shit on Michael Jordan for various reasons. And that's like the the tippity top tier of a certain industry you know so you're always gonna have stuff like that but joe bob's speech in particular uh really hit home and and again it's just motivating for anybody that's kind of dreaming to to be a creator to specifically within this to be an independent filmmaker and a filmmaker um because uh that's why he called it the um because it was based off of after watching one cut of the dead and that movie for those that don't know was a, a Japanese film that was made within a film school that was like the final class project. It was made for very minimal money, and to this date has grossed over thirty some million dollars. It's it's one of yep. those you know huge success stories. So after the film uh, credits rolled, he he did this um, you know keep rolling kind of. Uh, it was almost like a wrestling promo in a lot of ways, which I of course loved. So so yeah, very very inspiring, and, and kudos to Joe Bob because that's something that I'll go back to when i when i need motivation in the future regarding filmmaking and that sort of stuff dude the one thing that i don't think people realize when it comes to filmmaking is how demoralizing it is yep because the thing is like you bust your ass on this you pour everything you have you put yourself into out what there. you're doing you spend your money you spend an obscene amount of time doing it um, most people don't see any of that. You know what I mean? They see the movie, but they don't see all the long days of writing, of the hiccups that you had in the production. Uh, maybe, you know, the day that you were really, really fucking sick and you had to do stuff for, like, just the real shitty aspects of this, like there is with anything in life. 
Um, and people just don't think about it like that. They think like you're on a fancy movie set and it's, and I'm talking about from the aspect of working on movies. Like I've told people that I was working on a movie and the first thing that people ask you, this is just such a weird thing to me. Like if I told you like, Jared, guess what, dude, I'm working on a movie. What would one, like, how would you respond to that? Like, Jared, I got a job, dude. I'm an, I'm an actor on this one movie. It's really cool. Like, it's some horror movie with fucking zombies and shit. Like, I just wanted to let you know. I would, I'd be so happy for you and proud. Just just like, you know, when you did some of the stuff you did. And I wouldn't be asking you, how was the catering? Which I'm sure is something you, similar to what you're talking about. And you know what? I mean, you might ask me this, but it wouldn't be the first thing out of your mouth like it is for most people. And I, th- I think you're going to see this coming a mile away. So what are you getting paid to do that? Yeah. What are you getting paid? Who, like, who'd you meet? Like, who's the, who's the star actor? Who's the director? Yeah, like, did you meet anyone famous? And how yep. much are you getting paid? Which is a weird fucking thing to me. Because it's not like any... Like, that doesn't happen with other shit. Like, if some dude's like, Hey, Jared, uh, man, you know, I've been out of work for a while, dude. I finally got that gig at fucking Ford Auto. I'm a mechanic, dude. You wouldn't be like, awesome, man. How much are they paying you? Exactly. And that's, like, that's you'd why be like, like that's cool. Like you're happy for somebody because they achieved something they wanted to do. But it's just weird that that always equates to money with people. Obviously, we'd all love to make great money doing everything. Like that's, I mean, I don't know anybody that's like, man. The only problem with my job is I get paid too much. I'd I'd rather do this for no money. Like you never hear that shit. So it's just odd to me that that's like the way that people approach anything that involves movies because or they think like you know that or like if you tell people like you're you're making a movie right you you do get the happiness from people but then you get that weird part of like oh so you're trying to be famous and you're like no and they're like what do you mean no yeah it took us like over 10 years you know almost 12 years for people to finally kind of now now those that know of us and in our network and that sort of thing, it's like we're known as the, the movie guys and people want to be in the next movie and they legitimately are interested in what our next project is. But it took a long time. And, and to, to what you're talking about, hey, Ed, I always tell people that, that aren't familiar, like not even casual film goers, like people that maybe just watch movies here and there and don't give a shit and know nothing about it. It's always that watch the end credits to any movie. They go on yep. for two minutes of names of people, everything from makeup to wardrobe to stunts, actors, producers, writers, and you know a, a film like Indiana Jones or something that can go on for like six minutes on the people that worked on it. So um, there's no bigger aspect to something than teamwork with filmmaking. It's it's such a, a team thing because even having produced my own films, I, I, I'm just one of hundreds of people involved. So, you know, to, to kind of the outside looking in, I could kind of see, you know, some of that, especially like maybe a younger person, like, you know, some teenager that's asking you about who was in it or how much you got paid, you know, but yeah, some of these people that are, that are like adults, like asking you just the goofiest question, like you said, it's kind of like, like, that's the first thing you, you thought to ask me when I said I'm working on a freaking film. Yeah. It's just, it's bizarre. But, uh, but anyway, you know, really cool moment for Joe, Bob. And I also uh, wanted to mention this, too, because I, I think it, it, it's, it's important, too. Uh, if you guys have not seen the movie One Cut of the Dead, um, 
it's really something else. It's a fun movie. Uh, if you're into filmmaking or you want to be a director or something like that, it's a really great movie uh, for you, and not just for learning purposes. Because, and I'm not, I'm trying not to to give away any spoilers here, but it's that that is a a movie that is a total. And I've said it earlier about Joe Bob's speech, but it fits here. It's a total love letter to filmmaking and what you go through when you make a movie. And it's really a, a, a cool story, but it's also a really like heartwarming story at the same time. And it's kind of unexpected, too. So if you guys get a chance, check out One Cut of the Dead. It's definitely worth it. It's a really cool movie. It's one of the rare... I'd say it's in the top three of the super rare independent film Cinderella stories with uh, the Blair Witch Project and um, El Mariachi. So, you know, yeah. movies movies that were made for a few thousand dollars that made millions. Uh, it's such a rarity because trust me, I wish I was up there with them. <laughs> but um, it's, it's very inspiring to check out. Yeah, and you can also lump in movies there like Night of the Living Dead, um, you know, just stuff like basically, like you said, like stuff that was made, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and even Halloween were like that too at first. Well, because um, then there's those but, ones that they're like, oh, this was a super low budget. It's a huge success. And then the budget was like a million dollars, which I get it on certain scales, you know, the Hollywood scale or however you want to put it, that, that's nothing. But, um, you know, we're talking like five, six, seven thousand dollars. Exactly. And that's something that Joe Bob even mentions in his speech. Like, he's like, you know, I've seen $5,000 movies that are really good. And yep. I've seen $5,000 movies that are really bad. And he, he brought up a point that I thought was really good that me and you say a lot. Um, it's like, and, and uh, keep in mind, too, that I'm coming from a background where I reviewed a lot of movies for a long time. And this is one of the things that I used to echo to people all the time is, you know, you only have $5,000 to work with, right? So you can only do so much. But writing a script is free. Take all the time you can and pour it into that fucking script because it's not going to cost you any money to do it. Whether you do more, whether you do more expansive stuff or crazy shit that you know that you can't even afford to film, do it anyways. You might be able to use it somewhere else down the line. There's a reason why that's such a process because it's it's super important to the whole structure of everything and you're somebody that's made more than one movie and i know that we kind of agree on that point but like that's the one thing like you might not be able to you know shoot and trying you know we got to figure out different crazy stylish camera angles because you might not have access to the camera that day because you didn't rent it or your you know your camera doesn't work or whatever and that shit all costs money but to go back and look at your script or maybe fix something in the script or to think about new ways of doing things in the script that doesn't cost you anything but time and time is of the essence with this stuff. But if you use your time valuable, uh, you know, in a valuable way, then it pays off in the movie. I get asked all the time by younger kids and things like that. And that's, that's my go-to advice, man. It's the first step in that is mind a paper. You have to get it out of your mind and onto paper. So, you know, you're making a great point. Joe Bob made a great point with that. And then the other thing is I call it Nike Yoda. Just do it. Do or do not. There is no try. You just got to do it. You know, even in, in, in yep. the quarantine, man, if you're like a 15-year-old, um, iPhones, for example, have like iMovie and stuff. I know you mess with that, hey, Ed. It's like you know, yeah. shoot, shoot something with your iPhone and uh, edit it with that and start there. There's no, no better experience than just doing it. 
and getting that hands on. And you just got to do whatever you can to find ways. And, you know, then the next level on that is hit me up in an email if you're listening to me now. And, you know, we'll get you on, on one of our sets, you know, things like that. In, in terms, get the experience, do whatever you can to do it. But that's the main thing yeah, is and, just doing it. And that's another great point, too, because the first movie that they showed on Joe Bob this week was uh, Troma's War, and they had Lloyd Kaufman on. Which, if you don't know, Lloyd Kaufman's the guy who is the CEO and operator of Troma Films, um, has been an independent movie studio now for almost 50 years. So, and that was kind of the way that Troma did a lot of stuff. Like, it, yep. I know a lot of people that worked on Troma movies, and it's just because they called, they sent an email, they showed up, they, you know, did what they had to do to get on the set. And I mean, granted, they weren't paid, but they got to work on the movies and got some experience and saw how it works. It's it, it's really weird to explain to people that have never done it, but being on a movie set is a very weird and uh what's the right word it's like an experience onto of itself like yeah, you're unique. not gonna do something and it's like oh that's kind of like being on a movie set it's not there's nothing really like that so to have that ex- even if you don't want to work in a movie it's kind of or in the movies or you're not really a creative person it's something that i think everybody should have experienced sometime in their life if they so choose like go be an extra in your town go look for postings and, and go work on a movie and see what it's like because it's really something cool and it gives you a lot of perspective on stuff when you watch movies it's it's a cool thing to do it's like you know i think there's certain shit like that where it's like everybody in my opinion once in their life should want to like work on a movie maybe write a book or you know what i mean like it's like oh, i want to go skydiving like that kind of stuff like it, yeah, why not that stuff yep yeah, why not? Everybody, even if you don't want to work on them or you're not a creative type, you probably still watch movies and enjoy them on some level. So, like, wouldn't you have some curiosity about how they do it? You know what I mean? It's like, hell, if you never played a sport in your life, but you had an opportunity to go sit in a baseball locker room and then sit in the dugout for a game, why wouldn't you do that? It's like, absolutely. Yeah, why not? It's cool, too, because every movie set's different in their own ways, you know, especially dependent on the particular project. And I know you and I, some of the stuff we've done, you know, of course, with the lower budget stuff and and not even talking about the stuff that I do on my, you know, with my independent film company on our own. I I was actually an extra on um, She's Out of My League, which was, um, you know, a pretty big high budget studio comedy. So that was a really unique experience for me to see that kind of level and be on on set for that, you know, and that gave me a lot of different ideas and um, you know, perspective, uh, from that experience. So, you know, I, I completely agree with your point, man. It's, it's something that if, if you have any interest at all, it's not tough to, to be an extra, um, you know, uh, us here in particular in Pittsburgh, uh, the f- film community is banging right now. Of course, the, the pandemic's not helping, uh, that the last few months, but, um, prior to that, um, all things considered compared to like LA, Miami, Chicago, New York, like the big cities that are obvious you know and i always say pittsburgh's like the classic small big city in quotes which is one aspect i always loved about pittsburgh uh but still as a smaller city um the the film community is 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 banging there's some some projects that that you can um pretty easily become an extra on you know all you have to do is show up and sign up just to get that experience that you're alluding to hale yeah and there's a lot of guys out there working on a regular basis that need your help you know, like you, you mentioned about like getting on film sets. Yeah, for dude, we, we, I go through my, my phone book on my phone 
at, at times when we're shooting, you know, because as you know, like you were explaining earlier, like all kinds of different things can come up. And I'll just be going through like, hey, man, you know, you want to do something in a movie? Because then that, that's a funny aspect too. people know you do movies and they, they're always like, oh, you're going to get me in one. And I always tell them, I'm like, dude, I will be calling you. So I'll, I will I will pull that card. You know, don't tell me that if you're not serious, because I'll be calling your ass at like 11 at night on a Tuesday to see if you could do a scene or something, because that's what happens. Yeah. And I, dude, I've been there, too, because the very first opportunity I ever had to work on a movie, uh, I worked on a movie that never came out called The Screening, and it was made by Cameron Romero, who's George Romero's son. And that was a complete, out-of-the-blue, out-of-nowhere type situation for me. And I found myself on movie sets till about 3 o'clock in the morning, which was, wouldn't be that big of a deal, except for I had to be up uh, for work every morning at 7. And I was doing that shit for weeks. Um, so it's, you know, you got to really want to do it, but there are opportunities to do it, and there's a lot of people out there that, like we can't stress how many people that you need to make a movie in every capacity. It's the kind of thing too, where, you know, like everybody thinks about like, you know, PAs and staff guys and camera people and actors and extras and all that shit. But like, you never know when some dudes calling you for a movie because your uncle has a goddamn Mustang that they need for a scene. And he remembered that because he saw you, your uncle the one time and now he's calling you and like, is there any chance that your uncle still has that car and if he does is there any chance he would drive it here on this day for us so we can film it oh it happens like, all the, the time especially on the yeah, there, all the time people that own buildings people that have certain you know what i mean like you never know when somebody might need you for something so it's not as hard as it as it seems to get into the, the business and like you said in a, in a city like pittsburgh the the film community is banging, but it's also not big. So there are ways to get into to events and to things where you will run across these people because the, the circle's only so big. So you're going to keep running into the same people if you keep going to the same type of things. And st- it's just inevitable. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, you that, can that do it. Small just, quick. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but, but a great message by Joe Bob Briggs on the last drive-in. I, I wanted to mention that on the show. And uh, also, too, while we're speaking about movies, um, it was announced uh, just in the last week that uh, Scream 5 seems to be a go, uh, which is pretty wild to think about. And uh, David Arquette as, uh, is apparently returning. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the Scream series, but I do love the first one. And I think that the fourth one was actually really good and really, really underrated. So, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like if they feel like there's somewhere they can go creatively with the series, that I'm, I'd be interested in checking it out. I'm curious. I, I, I'm i a fan of this, the Scream franchise for sure. I, I just get to the point now, I, I don't get too excited for remo- remakes, reboots, and multiple sequels. Um I, I always hope that it, it might be that rarity of them getting the right people. Uh, some of the people behind it, um, as usual, without it in front of me, I forget what they worked on, but it was um, coming from films that, that were impressive to me that I liked. That I was like, oh, okay, these guys made this and they're writing it or whatever. So, you know, hopefully, like, like anything, they take it into a, a kind of original area because other than that, it's just kind of like how many times can you do the ghost face killer kind of thing with you know what would now be a fifth different killer or whatever so you know it's it's, it's really something like that's going to come down to the writing to me so you know we'll see yeah. as usual we'll have to see 
no, I totally agree. It definitely comes down to the writing. Um, but hopefully, you know, it happens, and hopefully it's good, because I think we'd be down for that. So uh, it is time for us to take a quick commercial break. Uh, don't forget, guys, we got a lot of stuff for you on the show this week. As I mentioned, uh, The Last Dance, Part 9 and 10, uh, Thursday Night Prime, Prime with Beyond the Law. And when we come back, we're going to be talking Dark Side of the Ring, The Road Warriors. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Jared from the What's Real Podcast, here to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. This newly revamped website is the home of the Pittsburgh-based production company, Churchill Pictures. It contains numerous original videos, including film trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, and the entire library of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW. Check it out today. We are Churchill Pictures, established from the bond of two childhood friends. We envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. Hey, it's Jared from the What's Real Podcast. I'm here to talk about the independent feature film Deference by Churchill Pictures. Bruno De Macy works for the most feared crime boss in the city while his best friend Polly Fusco gets himself in debt with an Irish gangster and needs his help. As Bruno attempts to rise in the ranks while running an underground gambling operation, Polly continues to work as a card hustler and becomes a marked man. The two find themselves in the middle of a street war between the Italians and the Irish. You can stream Deference today. Go to churchillpictures.com. Click the tab Featured. Go to the Deference page. It is available here to rent or own. Deference. When tradition fades away, order preserves respect. churchillpictures.com and we're back here on the show, and it is that time once again to get down to brass tacks on the latest Dark Side of the Ring on the Road Warriors. If you guys are not familiar, the Road Warriors are considered by a lot of people to be the greatest professional tag team wrestlers of all time. Um, they essentially, I've kind of always thought of them this way, they are the Hulk Hogan of tag teams. Um, they were a huge deal uh, when we were growing up. Um, even before that, really, um, these guys were on the scene and they were, uh, always main event stuff, big time, anytime, you know, for Christ's sakes in the, in the world of professional wrestling, um, when you get a big reaction from the crowd, uh, that's known as a pop, but specifically when you get a gigantic one, and this isn't by fans, this is from wrestlers themselves, they call that the Road Warrior Pop, which is a major, major designation for a team um, to give somebody that type of respect and that type of honor in the world of professional wrestling is almost unseen. Um, now, the reason why they would be on the dark side of the ring is because there were injuries along the way, and also Hawk, one half of the tag team, the Road Warriors, uh, was known to be quite a partier and quite a wild man. And he had passed away years ago, um, but you know it was kind of interesting to see where this was going to take us to kind of uncover the story and see what was going on. And um, you know they tell the entire story. Uh, they they talk to um, his tag team partner Animal, which we all expected. Uh, Paul Ellering, their manager for many years, was on here, which was pretty much expected by me. Uh, the thing that was not expected by me, however, was them sitting down with both of Hawk or Mike Hegstrand's brothers, um, which is crazy because when you see these two guys, it's like, was this fucking guy adopted or what? But the, he wasn't. This is their legitimate brothers. And uh, But 
you know, this is pretty crazy for me to say this, but and, and I'll see where, what you think about it, the Jay. But um, I've really been a fan of Dark Side of the Ring. It's a great show. Uh, I've really enjoyed it up to this point uh, into its second season. And this was one of the episodes that I was looking to the most. Um, but man, I got to tell you, I was super disappointed in this episode, and I might honestly think that out of every single episode that they've made of the show so far, that this one was unfortunately the worst one. Wow. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, um, like you kind of mentioned, that was a good point that they were like the Hulk Hogan of tag teams because, I mean, these guys are the definition of the -the over-the-top 80s wrestler you know i mean that's the thing that's why they were so over how can you not love guys that come out to heavy metal music with face paint they're jack to the gills power lifter dudes with goddamn shoulder pads and spikes name the road warriors and sometimes legion of doom hawk and animal um i remember as a kid when i first um fell into wrestling these are the type of characters that suck me in and yep I didn't know too much about them in that, but you know me in my time frame with 92, that was one of their, their big WWF runs of the time and things like that. So I was introduced to them right away when I got sucked into it and they were definitely one of my favorite tag teams. So, um, you know, all things considered, like you said, I was really pumped up for this episode. Um, I don't think I disliked it as much as you did. I enjoyed it. Uh, the thing that I took from as being the biggest negative for me was and, and that's the point, of course. It's Dark Side of the Ring. We, we talk about it week, week to week here. Some are, are worse than others, but it's Dark Side of the Ring for a reason. These are the gritty, real tragic aspects of professional wrestling. And that that was the case with this one with, with Hawk. It, it made me pretty sad because you know, I normally watch these on um, Wednesday morning because um, you know, I usually fall asleep with the kids when – when it's live Tuesdays and I remember just starting my day off being, being all depressed, you know, watching the, the demise of, of Hawk because it's one of those situations where everybody kind of says in this that he, he was another one of those guys that he didn't hurt anybody else. He just hurt himself. So it's yeah. not like he's this huge asshole. It, it affected animal as his tag team partner in a lot of ways. And we'll get into that. But other than that kind of aspect, most of this was just damage that he did to himself. So guys would just say like, Dude, Mike was a great guy. He was hilarious. He was the party animal. He had you, your ba- he had your back no matter what. He was super loyal. He just had those, and, and I don't even think they said the, the demons because that could be a hit or miss term for me. I think they just they just said he just he just loved the party, and, and you know how that goes. It it goes from um, it's the classic thing. It goes from fun to to dangerous real quick. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, the, my problem with this overall was just the lack of I guess the the filmmakers doing their due diligence to get the true stories because there was a lot in this that was just bullshit and I shouldn't be able to come on here and say that um and and I'll give you a few examples like the whole story that was told in this about how they became the Legion of Doom because okay they were in wrestling as the Road Warriors for years and when they went to the WWF in 1991 or 1990 actually um, Vince McMahon was a little weary of the name The Road Warriors because of the movie. Um, he didn't want to deal with lawsuits. So he figured, like, we got to call you something else. And the name Legion of Doom was brought up, which they eventually went with. Um, 
So they tell this big story in Dark Side of the Ring where that came from Hawk watching He-Man because the Legion of Doom on He-Man. Yeah, I had um, never heard that. That's a bullshit story because the fact of the matter is uh, they were in a group years before this called the Legion of Doom. There was a group uh, managed by Gary Hart, I believe it was, uh, and it was you know King Kong Bundy, Jake the Snake, the Road Warriors, like they were called the Legion of Doom. Um, so they were never called the Legion of Doom. That was just part of it. It'd, it'd be like if Ric Flair and Arn Anderson came to the to the WWF and they called them the Horsemen. It's like, or when actually, I could use a real life one. When Tully and Arn came to the WWF, they called them the Brainbusters. They didn't call them the Horsemen because the Horsemen were the Four Horsemen. It was a bigger stable, so they didn't bring them in as the Horsemen. They called them the Brainbusters. Um, and it'd be the same situation here. They just didn't well, want to allow, call them the Warriors. Let me to pose a question to you real quick. Yeah. So yeah. he couldn't. You don't think he could have come up with that from He Man for that group? No. Either because the, okay. no because that was they the way they framed it was essentially we went to the WWF and we had to come up with another name and we thought about it because of him always doing the Legion of Doom shit from He Man. Well, okay. They were they were called the Legion of Doom in in probably 1983. So this would have been seven years before that. And gotcha. I don't know when He-Man started, but I remember He-Man as a kid. Um, it was like 85-ish. Yeah, so this was even before that. Yeah, that makes so, sense. you know, it's just a weird thing. And there was another thing, too, that I was kind of disappointed in that they didn't hint at. Um, and it, it was really disappointing because you could tell that they were trying to make it a little bit more of a sensational story. So the whole telling of the story about how Hawk, when he left Animal um, to wrestle on his own, um, there might be some truth to that, but there also is a truth that they didn't tell in this documentary at all. So in the early 1990s, there was a, a glut of wrestlers who were able to get Lloyd's of London insurance policies. And when they got hurt, they paid out on the policies. So the thing is, they weren't allowed to wrestle after they were getting these payments because then they can pull the payments from them. So what a lot of these guys had to do was wait for their Lloyd's of London policies to expire and then they would come back to wrestling like mr perfect if you remember mr perfect was wrestling consistently until about 1993 and then it got really sporadic for a while and then he didn't wrestle at all for a long time and he was or actually it was even before that it was when he was with flair so perfect was wrestling all the time he was the intercontinental champion he, he made his name he was a big deal and then out of the blue when rick flair came to the company he essentially quit wrestling for the majority of the time that Ric Flair was in the company, so almost two years. And then towards the end of Flair's run, you remember that match that Mr. Perfect had on Raw where it was like loser leaves town and oh, he amazing. beat Flair. And it was Classic. a great match. It's one of the best Raw matches of all time. Um, but the reason why Perfect didn't wrestle that whole time wasn't because he was injured. It was because he was getting payments from Lloyd's of London. Uh, Rick Rude had a, a contract like that too. And his was paying out uh, during the time period of when his career ended in WCW with the quote-unquote injury and all the way through ECW. That's why Rick Rude could never wrestle in ECW because he was getting the payments. Same thing with when he came back. He was just a manager. 
uh, in WWF and WCW because he was still getting the payments. Uh, but that time period where uh, Animal was not teaming with Hawk and Hawk was in Japan doing the Power Warriors with Kensuke Sasaki, it was because Animal wasn't wrestling due to his Lloyds of London contract paying out, and you wouldn't see them come together again until 1995 WCW, which was a time period in the in this show that they completely glossed over. Even their return to WCW, they act like they, they acted like they quit be, being a team and didn't get back together again until 1997 or so WWF, and that's just not true. It's off by years. So the fact that the filmmakers didn't catch that bummed me out because it's part of their story. So, which is crazy too, that because Animal's so involved in this, and he, you know, he lived through this entire thing. He's one of those two guys. Yep. But it's you could tell that there's part of it, like, and let's be honest here, and I'm not trying to be a dick when I say this, but you know, those of us who are wrestling fans who know, uh, I'm going to pose a question to you, Jared, to see your answer. Out of the two members of the Road Warriors, who was the more poignant member? Who was pretty much everybody's favorite member? Who was the better member? Who was the the more credible member of the tag team to you? Animal. You think so? I mean, as a kid, I always uh, I just gravitated towards him because of stupid shit like the spider. Okay, well um, here's but here's if you're gonna say point. Hawk, Hawk w- was the one that did all the the best promo stuff. The you know what a rush. If you remember, it, whenever uh, Flair, def- you know, during his years as champion during Clash of the Champions, which one of them got a title shot against Ric Flair on Clash of the Champions? Yeah, Hawk. It was Hawk. You know, yeah. so it was like he was consistently the he was the more charismatic member. He now Animal was the bigger guy. I'll say that, like the more jacked up dude. Um, but like Animal was, yeah, the, Hawk was he definitely was, more athletic. I mean, he had that drop kick. So you know, you you'll know what I'm saying here. He Hawk in the Legion of Doom was Shawn Michaels in the Rockers or Bret Hart in the Hart Foundation. He was the guy that was kind of the carrier of the team. I'm not saying that both guys weren't important, but they were the lead guy. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of get this vibe that Animal is just doing his best part to, like, make sure that people kind of forget about that. That's a good point. You know, because as we always say, what is wrestling at all times? They're always working, man. It's always a work. See, you got what I was putting down. Oh, yeah. And, th- and that's why I didn't really care for the episode. I-, I thought that there was a story to tell here, and in lieu of doing that, they just glossed over time periods and just told stories about Hawk being all fucked up. And, you know, I will say this, too. Um, Hawk was one of the guys that was known for being a partier, but, like, there really wasn't a whole lot of problems with it. And I know that they said that the problems really started in the WWF, which isn't completely true because they even show you too in the in dark side of the ring if you notice there's footage that they show you it looks like home video footage of hawk and it looks yeah. like he's doing coke yeah he's like all that's play. a video <sighs> that's a video that somebody took backstage at starcade or no i'm sorry uh, great american bash and it's been on youtube for years so and this is what way before the years of the WWF. And I know that that time period where they were in the WWF is kind of known for a high time period of partying. So I'm not going to you know act like the WWF has nothing to do with it because they certainly do. Um, but Hawk was a guy that was, you know, a 
what do you call it? Like a functioning addict for a really long time. And, you know, it's, it's kind of shitty for Hawk, or I'm sorry, for Animal to kind of put that on WWE, considering that Animal has gone back several times. He even, if you remember, this is very weird, but do you remember in the mid-2000s when Animal came back and had like a solo run on SmackDown? By himself, yeah. and then they yep. they did that thing for a time period where they put him with Heidenreich, and they were both wearing the shoulder pads and shit for a while. Like it's yeah. just weird. So you know what I mean? Animal, yeah, there's a little bit of opportunist in him, and I think that this is yeah, a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah so, it's there. I mean, one of the, one of the aspects that stuck out to me too, because um, you're a lot more familiar with a lot of this era uh, than I was, so. A few of my bullet points from this that I wasn't fully aware of and didn't know too much about that were pretty interesting. And again, it's you know on the darker side of it, but I remember the the big scaffold match and I watched it, and I remember him him being hurt, but I didn't remember him having a full blown uh, Hawk that is having a full blown broken leg from Japan (laughs) and doing a yeah I didn't know that a a goddamn scaffold match which is insane. And then yep. the other the other one was of course uh, one of our favorites because it's it's such a unique pay per view for the time was SummerSlam '92 at Wembley Stadium in London. And I didn't know any of that. He was destroyed. They said he was blacked out, but that that was the time they still let him perform when he was in no condition to perform. They kind of just like you know modified the situation like they still rode motorcycles to the ring <laughs> and no. i guess they said that for safety's sake they're not going to face their planned opponents the natural disasters because they have a combined weight of 900 pounds and they changed it to um you know money inc but uh yeah i wasn't i wasn't familiar with the behind the scenes on that that was really well, crazy there is something here that i do have an issue with because i'm going to ask you this question because you were following at the time um, but now answer me this. Do you remember SummerSlam 92? Like when you were a kid? Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to say that you were super into wrestling at that time period. So you're probably a pretty good judge of things that happened. Like what you remember from TV at the time and things like that. I mean, I know some stuff gets lost to time, but like you're pretty in tune with that time period, right? Yep. Okay. Do you remember the Road Warriors getting the title shot going into SummerSlam and then watching SummerSlam and then they switched the matches around because that's something they would do because a guy showed up on the day of the show inebriated enough for them to have to switch the match but yet not inebriated enough to let him drive a motorcycle to the fucking ring during the show that's what i'm saying that doesn't make any fucking sense they never changed that now maybe they changed the match weeks out like you know hawk's been kind of fucked up we don't think he's trustworthy so we're not doing the title shot you're fighting somebody else that's totally believable to me but on the day of the show like they made it seem on on this that's complete and utter fucking bullshit. There's no way they switched a title match on the day of the show because a guy's inebriated and then allow him to drive a motorcycle to the ring. Because I'll tell you right now, he's clearly fucked up in that match, and I have no idea how he didn't kill himself with the motorcycle. So that whole thing is not only bullshit, but it's also a fucking miracle because I don't know how the hell they did it without dying or fucking Dude, something horrible happening. It's so crazy, and it's funny how you brought up, like, Watching it as, as, as kids because I didn't pick up on it as a kid. No, you know, I just I just look at it as a normal match. But then th- them putting the spotlight on them and, and kind of a microscope on them in the documentary here, you're like you just said, you're like, oh my god, 
like he was and, fucked up. They're like, you know, like look at him after they win. He's like all goofy. <laughs> they changed dude, the finish because he couldn't do the doomsday. And I thought about this. I forgot about it. But at the time, I remember thinking to myself, watching that, like, I got to go back now and watch this match in full. I know. I thought that, uh, too. Which I didn't do, and I'm kind of pissed off that I didn't just for, you know, the podcast here. But I'm still going to do it because now I'm really curious. Like, I want to see just how the bad he on was it. during. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to watch it with that kind of knowing that and with that kind of critique going into it. And I want to see really how bad it was because That's there's, remember, remember a couple years ago, just, you know, like, we, we text and shit all the time anyway when we see stuff that pertains to, like, the other person. But I sent you that match, I believe, where it's uh, it's Rick Martell and Kerry Von Erich. And Kerry Von yeah. Erich is fucked up in this he match. It's such a mess. So, like, that stuff, is, and, you know, I think a lot of people might remember the uh, Jeff Hardy Sting match in TNA just a few years yep. ago where Jeff was in horrible condition. And there's match, there's been matches through years with Scott Hall where he was in really bad condition. Um, so that was a thing that happened for a long time in wrestling. It's just weird that this was one that really wasn't on my radar until I watched this. Exactly. That's what I was thinking too, because that's what I was going to say. Hey, Ed, it's just funny that that is a classic, classic reused clip constantly in, in WWE archive footage and all that. Is that particular motorcycle ride on the Legion of Doom at one? Oh stadium. yeah. Yep. So it's like that. Think about that. Like one of the most used clips of the Legion of Doom in WWE, and he's annihilated riding a motorcycle down. You know that long ass pathway too because they're in a stadium like just yep. yeah th- that that really stood out in this is being a crazy crazy part and just something as a side note because this reminds me of it but uh everybody knows in in the world of wrestling that uh you know before wrestlemania just a couple of years ago the the famed moment in wwf history was the uh, 93,000 people at the Pontiac Silverdome for WrestleMania 3. Uh, a lot of people listening might not realize that that's not true. That's actually a work number. And that's been debated in wrestling circles for years. And believe me when I tell you this, we've looked into it many a times throughout the years. And I believe it to be fake. Uh, and the, the true fact of the matter is, previously, before that WrestleMania just a few years ago that set the all-time attendance record at like 102,000 or whatever it was, that the biggest WWF show attendance-wise in the history of the company was SummerSlam 92, uh, as there was 80-plus thousand at that show, legitimately in Wembley Stadium, which is one of the biggest stadiums in the on Earth. Uh, um, again, that's why it stands out for back then, man. Just such a huge stadium show. You had your manias and stuff, but that was the biggest SummerSlam ever. Yep. And how weird is it, too, that at the time, it was uh, when it aired on pay-per-view, it was actually taped. Because yeah, the time the is time way... Difference. Yeah, it's way off. So that's pretty crazy to think about, too. Imagine uh, in this day and age, somebody paying... You know, X amount of dollars for a pay per view for a taped show because now if that happened, you'd have the the results in real time on Twitter, um, and that just didn't exist back then. So it was pretty wild time. to think about all that, and it's a pretty unique show. And uh, but it's but again, getting back to Dark Side of the Ring, I thought uh, overall that it was it was pretty disappointing. And I know that it's you know the show's been really good too, so I guess it kind of speaks to that as well. Uh, but I thought this was probably the worst episode so far because I thought that they missed a lot of stuff that they probably shouldn't have missed. Well, allow me to to lighten up and, and bring another LOL for the J moment of this because I have heard incarnations of this story before, 
but okay. just it being brought up again. Uh, so this this in particular version was told by Charles the Godfather Wright, and he tells the story about all the guys going to a, a strip club at the Cheetah, and it was this rare instance that didn't occur too much that Vince was partying with all of them. It oh was yeah, <laughs> this is a true story, by the way. Finishers. Do you <laughs> remember this being a story? The, yeah, yeah. And when it was like redone, dude, because I remember the, the the one part he took he took the Doomsday Device, which mm-hmm. for those listeners that don't know, the the one tag team partner puts the opponent on his shoulders, the other tag team partner jumps off the top and clotheslines him off the shoulders. It was one of the oh, the biggest it's finishing a move. moves ever. Hey, and this is a move, if you're listening to this, Jared's very qualified in speaking to, because not just because of the OVW training that he's had and the other professional wrestling training, but because as idiot, untrained teenagers, Jared allowed me and friends to do this maneuver to him off a whole myriad of sheds and fences yeah. and shit because we were idiots. But, you know, Go he's not... He, he knows, yeah. <laughs> Might as well go watch his kid hurt. Yes, but he uh, he tells the story. He takes the Doomsday, and the thing with the Doomsday, though, and that's probably why I pulled it off. If you get a full rotation, which isn't the easiest thing to do, but if you get a full rotation, you land on your feet and you're you're uninjured. And I'm sure somehow Vince's goofy ass pulled that off. But from that story was he got murdered during the um, the Heart Foundation's finish, the, yep. the heart attack. It's yep. like the the one of the one guy holds him up. And Bret Hart comes flying with a flying clothesline. And, dude, he took that in a strip club on yep. a just strip club floor. He's just, just uh, landing on not. I was I was dying because it just reminded me of like yeah this sounds like shit me and my friends would do like we all get fucking shit faced and decided a bar that we're just gonna start <laughs> wrestling and it's like you and you, and we've all been there too like I'm not talking like we're fucking you know a gang of WWF wrestlers or anything but like you've been in the scenario before where you're just in some shithole bar. And there's two bartenders, and it's like one of them's like an 80 year old man, and the other one's like a 40 year old small woman. And there's no security. There's no, and it's like if you just start going to ape shit, no one's gonna fucking do anything. <laughs> Dude, that's that's the funniest part. The Godfather's like the multi millionaire owner of the company is taking finishing moves in a strip titty club. <laughs> yep. Vince Vince sounds like he was actually really cool at one point (laughs) before he was a delusional weirdo. Yeah. But time will do that. It'll do that for sure. But, you know, I don't know. You know, I think we pretty much hit everything on this one. I mean, you know, the story in and of itself is an interesting one. And I think that it's they kind of missed out on on some of the stuff that they could have told. I did like the. And dude, oh my god, this was the jaw-dropping moment for me. I couldn't fucking believe that Eddie Sharkey is still alive. The trainer yeah. of the road war. I was like, holy shit, he's still alive? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. God, I mean, but nonetheless, yeah. Eddie Sharkey was a tough son of a bitch. And that whole Minnesota squad, uh, that you know, they, they even hit on that too. Like, imagine out of the same high school and area comes the road warriors mr perfect rick rude john nord the barbarian aka the berserker uh fuck who else am i missing here brody was, was from the same area uh flair but not, he wasn't in the same group with these guys 
Um, but it's just like this high school, these two high schools, uh, yeah, Scott Norton ridiculous. as well, like got all these dudes. It kind of rem- reminds you of like the, uh, yeah, the cool West Norman Texas this. University. If you remember yeah. from Texas, where like DiBiase yep. and fucking Stan Hansen and Tito and all those dudes came from. Um, but it's, yeah, it was really cool seeing some of these guys on here talking about this stuff. Scott Norton, I haven't seen in anything in a really long time. Yeah, that was the thing. But yeah, it all wraps up. Like I had mentioned at the, at the beginning, it kind of got depressing because um, Hawk ends up having a near-death experience in Australia from cardio myopathy. And um, that was at least a wake-up call he needed because Animal tells that story where like he flew him back and then just is like, you're on your own, brother. But um, Hawk would end up getting into like faith, which that was kind of funny. Like they were watching these evangelist strongmen, the power team. I remember and, that, and like actually. that, like converted, yeah, like converted, which them is to, like, weird oh. as fuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be Christian now because the the power team. But but it was good because um, you know the drugs and alcohol were replaced by prayer and a hot new fiance. His fiance was really hot. Um, it was a shame because um, he turned his life around and he died. Like right when he was moving into a new home with his fiance in Florida at 46. So, um, you know, and that, that was pretty cool, though, when Ellering tells the story about he and his wife cleaning off Very the old cool. rusty black van and driving to the eulogy, and, and he uh, recited the eulogy that he did. So, yeah, that, that got me teared up. And, um, you know, because again, we mentioned on the podcast uh, a lot of personal loss recently. So I get triggered pretty easily. So, Same. yeah, that was pretty, pretty sad the, the way that, you know, the, like you mentioned, his brother's talking about him uh, tearing up, you know, because, cause again, he, he was a wild man and, and beat up his own body. But, you know, people were just like, he was a party animal and, and a good dude, you know, and it's, it just sucks that they caught up to him. That's right. So that's it uh, for us this week on Dark Side of the Ring. Next week, we are going to have the season finale with uh, an episode that's going to be brutal. Uh, yeah, talk about triggering. All on Owen Hart, uh, which join us for that next week because, you know, not only are we going to talk about that, but um, that's a situation that we lived through. Um, we remember that night very well. We watched together. Yep, yep. Josh's basement. And that was a really, like, one of the worst nights I've ever had watching pro wrestling. But we'll get into all that next week after we take in the the last episode of the season of Dark Side of the Ring. So stay tuned for that, guys. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, guys, we're going to have the very last segment of The Last Dance, parts 9 and 10. So stick around for that, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast. What would dad do? Suppose dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to dad's. Well, that's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412 812- 856-5666 located at 4320 Northern Pike Monroeville and 1050 Brayton Avenue Pittsburgh PA that's dad's 
And we're back here on the show, and uh, it's time, guys. It is the literal last dance for us this week as we talk about parts 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. And man, The last, this, last dance. This has been something else. It really has. I can't say enough good things about this. Um, I was kind of dreading this uh, going into it, knowing that it was the last one, because I've really enjoyed these all the way through. And this one was no exception, man. They uh, they managed to get something major with every one of these that's so cool. Just to, you know, like you, you find out stuff or you see a, a, a manner of doing things that is just different than what you expected. And it's pretty crazy, too, reliving it that way because it's like we remember it the first time around. So to get those additional aspects of everything uh, was really cool. And uh, and I was really looking forward to this one uh, for one personal reason because I knew that this was going to feature the Eastern Conference Finals between the Chicago Bulls and the Indiana Pacers. Now, as I've mentioned here on the show before, I'm a Knicks fan, and I've don't like the Bulls, and I fucking hate the Indiana Pacers. And it was kind of cool because it reminded me of a time, one of the few times, where I found myself really rooting for the Bulls because fuck the Pacers. And that was kind of was was great for me as a Knicks fan back in the day because even though Jordan was a pain in my ass and I respected the hell out of him, uh, I'd be pissed whenever he'd beat the Knicks. But there would be times where a team would beat the Knicks in the playoffs, and they would go on to have to play the Bulls, and it was a scenario where I'm like, yeah, good luck, motherfucker, because Mike's going to get you now. Like, you didn't you didn't do shit. You're not going to do shit. You're not going to get past the Bulls. And that's pretty much what was going on for many years there in the 90s, where it was like that the buck stops with Chicago. Yep, and, and it was cool seeing um, the introduction of Reggie Miller yep. and, and a super young Reggie Miller and you know, his uh, dominance coming up, uh, just such a clutch Hall of Fame player. And he and Michael's, you know, kind of Michael button heads. And I like that part where he's like, he's like, yeah, after you're the, there was that one incident they had. And he's like, I never called him Michael Jordan again. It was either Jordan, Black Cat, or uh, I forget Black the other Jesus. one. <laughs> Black Jesus. Yeah, because he, yeah, he, he made the Jesus comment to him. So yeah, cause that, he, that he, was cool. He tells the story of an earlier game in his career, which, by the way, those Pacers jerseys were amazing, even though I hate yeah, them. Yeah, I always um, like those. But it was like, because Reggie Miller was in the league in the late 80s. That's kind of when he got his start. And uh, he talked about it like in his first season, like he was having a really good game. And he was like, yo, this is the guy everybody's talking about, this fucking Jordan guy. And he's like, well, by the end of the game, he had lit me the fuck up. And, you know, he's like, yeah, I guess I shouldn't have did that. And he's like, yeah, I never <laughs> talk shit to black Jesus. And it was like... Yeah. That's the thing that people don't like Jordan. And this is why I think he's the greatest player of all time. Cause this dude was a fucking mercenary. He was, anyone can get it. That's, I mean, that's the anyone. thing with this whole thing. Yeah. If somebody fucks with him, forget about it. Every time he's, I, I was saying he's a hundred percent record with like getting revenge on people competitively. Yeah. It's in it, it. And this one really showed that because if you remember, in earlier podcasts, when we were talking about this, I spoke about something that I found out after watching The Last Dance. And I was like, as a player, Larry Bird was 6-0 and against Michael Jordan in the playoffs. Something people don't mention very often. And they made a really interesting point that I remember vividly at the time. So, they beat the Bulls 
two games in a row. So they were down 2-0, and then they went up 2-0, or they went they tied it up 2-2. And game four was seemed like a turning point in the series where it was like, man, the Pacers got their ass, and the Bulls might not be able to overcome this. Well, as they win game four, and the entire team is running around and celebrating, and the crowd's going nuts, the camera gets a shot of Larry Bird. Who looks like his mother just died. Yeah, that was great. Because he knew what they were going to be dealing with from that point forward. And what they dealt with was a practically unstoppable Michael Jordan. And that and, and that, one and thing I will say, dude, as much as I hate the Pacers, that fucking team they had was unbelievable. Very that balanced, team, loaded. They were, yeah, that, they break it down. Dude, that Pacers team was better than the Jazz team that the Bulls would go on to face in the finals. And I mean by a large margin. Yeah. And that's, again, that's like the, the one of the top aspects for, for me on this entire docuseries, all 10 episodes, is it just, it just breaks down how the dynasty happens. You know, which is obviously the point, but when you sit and watch it, you know, all of these 10 episodes, now we're coming to the conclusion of it. it it's just so cool to see. And, and, and again, it goes to the uh, filmmakers for the, the storytelling aspects that they're doing visually and all that. And again, as we always say, the music. And I mean, I think I, I quoted myself last week as saying like the perfect storm of entertainment for me. And that's yep. exactly what this is. But that's just a huge part of it is just seeing like the breakdowns of all this and this, this part in particular with like the, the Pacers series and how it started and how him and Reggie were. And then eventually, you know, the bulls dominate, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. Hey, yeah, this, this Pacers team was just loaded. Absolutely, man. They were an unbelievable team. It's crazy to me. Like, and it, this kind of cemented it to me, but like when you really think about it, like this, this is obviously just about the last year, but they cover all six titles. Man, do you know how many absolutely great championship level teams that literally ran into the Bulls and never won shit? Like teams that yep. should have probably won multiple. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that in 1993, if let's say like Michael Jordan got hurt and the Bulls just faltered and didn't make the playoffs or just would be one and done or something, like the Knicks would have would have won the championship. There's no doubt without them in 98, I think the Pacers would have won the championship. Um, I think in 96, for example, if there was no Bulls team, that the Sonics probably would have ended up winning the championship because that Sonics team was really fucking good. Um, It's crazy to me how many different teams that Bulls team put on fucking ice, man. Just shows you the, you know, the, the, Role players that went around Jordan fit perfectly. You know, you see that here too, like from Kukoc to Kerr, and uh, we can get into it. I, you know, I try not to go out of order and stuff um, from when things pop in my head, but um, they had a, a big part on Steve Kerr, which I've been waiting for. But that was really this. good. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it reminds me too because I, I read something after I watched this, and uh, basically it's a story. If you guys don't know. Uh, Steve Kerr's dad worked, he was a government worker, and he was a teacher as well. So he was in Beirut uh, working for the consulate, and he was murdered by two men, two terrorists posing as students in a school. 
And the story is heartbreaking, and, and Steve Kerr tells about that story, and he, they, they even ask him if he ever shared his story about his dad with Michael Jordan, and he said no. Um, yeah, I didn't know this, and that's why I didn't they brought either. it up. They're like, yeah. did you and uh, Michael ever talk about your dads? And I'm like, what is this? And then they yep. go into the whole thing. I'm just like, geez, like, what are the chances of that? And I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I read this article where it was, it was basically like, not only is Steve Kerr, Steve, Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr, uh, a good gu- a good guy, but he's also a class act. And it was basically this guy um, who was a reporter, and he was fresh to America. And basically, Steve Kerr was really, really kind to him for no reason. And this is when Steve Kerr was coaching the Warriors uh, in more recent years. But it was just a really nice story that it, it kind of showed. Like, dude, Steve Kerr seems like a legitimately good dude like to the core and I, it's it's also one of the reasons too and i've i've kind of realized this over recent years but uh with the warriors kind of being a dynasty in and in of themselves um a lot of people dislike them and i don't like i really like the warriors i like their team i like the way that they play and i like steve kerr and it's kind of like whenever people were like you know if a dynasty team's not your team they're very hateable but, like, if somebody asked me, like, well, why don't you hate the Warriors? Like, one of the reasons would be, like, because I actually like Steve Kerr. I think he's a really good coach, and I have no problem with him winning tons of championships. He's a good dude, so, like, I'm not mad about it. He's not a pussy. He's not an asshole. He's not a jerk or a loudmouth asshole coach that you just or that is just unlikable. Like, Steve Kerr, to me, is just inherently likable, and it also helps, too, that he's just a decent human being. Yeah, just from where we come from, I always like the little white dudes in the NBA, you know, because you just gravitate towards people you're similar to. Um, is he is he still the coach of the Warriors? Yep, right. Yep, sure yeah, is. Thought so. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's funny too because a lot of people are talking about the NBA and everything, and you know, like oh, you, like you don't hear a lot of talk about it, but it's like the longer this layoff stays for the NBA, the sooner the championship version of the Warriors will be healthy and back playing again. So the NBA is going to be interesting because of that alone. But I mean, I know we're yeah, helping a them bit, out a little bit far ahead of ourselves on this, but, um, but you know, yeah, great story that I didn't know uh, about Steve Kerr. So that was really cool. And they kind of showed, because I remember this too, like people tend to forget that Steve Kerr was one of the more instrumental uh, role players in that uh, the the second three Pete man because he took the place of John Paxton and that was exactly you know, people and forget that, that before the current time period in the NBA where shooting has become the norm Steve Kerr was the all time leader in three point percentage when he retired. Yep, and that that was a really cool thing too. Hey Ed was um, how he talked about he looked up to Paxton and they yeah. played one year together on the team and, and Paxton took him under his wing and they talked about that. Yeah, and he, he, people forget, too, that Steve Kerr played on that Cavs team. You know, the shot with Craig Elo that everybody always sees. Yep. The, you know, the fucking Steve Kerr played for the Cavs that year. So he knew what he was dealing with with Jordan. I mean, I think that that's part of the reason, too, why, you know, everybody talks about, like, role players are being important on a team, and they obviously are. But the kind of role players that the Bulls team had was super important because they brought in guys that were specifically tailored to play with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and shit. It was going to make them better players. So I think that's part of the aspect that people forget. Like, 
you know, obviously we know why this team was so good. It was because of Scotty and Jordan and, you know, the Horace Grant and, you know, guys like that. But people forget that the Bull, the Bulls' role players during that time period were pretty outstanding. And that should be a little bit of a pat on the back to Jerry Krause, who is billed as a villain in this, but he did play a part well, in building these championships. Absolutely. That's, that's the kind of thing that I liked about this. Hey, it it kind of comes full circle where they kind of give him his props mm-hmm. in these last couple episodes. Uh, Even Jerry Pippen Krause. does. So I like that. Exactly. Because they were looking at him as a villain. He Pippen was quoted as saying he's one of the best uh, general managers of all time. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty wild, you know. And one of the things that I saw, too, I saw this on ESPN after the airing of it, and it was pretty crazy. But if you remember how there was all the salary talk, like around the second episode with Pippen, they showed the money that everybody made their last season there. And I was really surprised by this. Do you know how much money Dennis Rodman got for that season? No idea. Four and a half million. That's it. Oh, Wow. It's pretty crazy to realize how cheaply together this team was. Now, Michael Jordan made $33 million because, again, he played on a smaller contract most of his career, too. Um, And I think that's something that gets lost in all this, too, is they don't realize the sacrifices financially a lot of these guys made to be a part of these teams. Because they they realize that. It's a team effort. And and some of the earlier episodes of The Last Dance, you know, we've already covered it, obviously, but they kind of state that that Michael Jordan had to learn that he wasn't the only guy like him scoring 70 points a game isn't going to make them a dynasty and he needs those role players and then the business side of it you have to take those pay cuts because you know like you were just talking about when when you're not on that franchise uh you hate them and a a famous one here on the uh or I should say infamous franchise on the what's real podcast is of course the new england patriots but you know one one thing you can give to tom brady that's something that he would do as well he would be willing to take a pay cut to be surrounded by role players yeah because the thing is too in sports and jordan was probably the first guy to realize this he was able to take less money in basketball because he was making a lot more money with nike so of course yeah and, and that's something that i think gets lost on a lot of athletes nowadays because they make that great you know, endorsement money, but they don't take the pay cuts. It's a little bit different though in basketball now because the way they have the contracts set up. So it's not really like guys get designations. Like if you're a max player or a super max player, there's no negotiating. It's if the team's going to give it to you, then they're going to give it to you. And and then it's up to you to sign it. But there's no like, well, I want more money in less years. And I want this. It is what it already is, which I think is one of the reasons why the NBA is in such a good place. And I also think that's partially because of these Bulls teams that they realized that there needed to be some shifting uh, because there needed to be some protections put in place for for championship teams. Otherwise, they were constantly going to be broken up. And that doesn't, it, you know, the parity helps the league, but, you know, make no mistake about it. They don't make fucking 10-part documentaries about a team that won one time 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of money and, and eyes and attention and ratings and ticket prices and, you know, sellouts and everything else that come along with teams like this, and they know that. They talk about how much this team made the future of the NBA possible to where it's at now. Absolutely. You know, we, we've talked about that. I mean, they're, they're maybe going to surpass the NFL in, in, in 
pro sports as far as at least cultural impact and, and things like that um, and, and go head-to-head in, in ratings and revenue and, and all that. So it, it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for, for this Chicago Bulls dynasty and the rise of Jordan and everything. You know, as a kind of a side note here, it's just something that popped in my mind, but like we've kind of done this in our own heads because of the success of both leagues, but the NBA versus the NFL, okay? And it's weird because they both have some random thing behind them propping them up. Like the NFL is the NFL, but the 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 thing that props them up behind the scenes is the popularity of fantasy football. Um, so it brings a, a certain audience that's always there no matter what. And basketball is similar, but it's not fantasy basketball propping it up. It's culture propping it up. Yep. Like, people don't wear tennis shoes because of fucking baseball players. They wear them because of basketball. Basketball players are trendsetters in that way. So it's really bizarre to see these. Th- and then when you look at the more the, the leagues nowadays that are struggling, kind of like the NHL um, doesn't have anything propping it up. Major League Baseball doesn't have anything for years the thing propping up baseball was that it's america's pastime that's kind of moved on especially with the influx of a lot of international players to the game too and the scandals and stuff so isn't it weird how like the most successful sports leagues have almost oddball related things to them propping them up behind the scenes thus making them among the most successful leagues it's pretty crazy to think about that and and that's why they talk about a detriment to the NFL being that the guys have helmets and all yep. this padding and stuff. Yep. So they're not as recognizable and things like that. And that's so true. There's that side of it in comparison to the NBA. Yeah. And then they have something like football has inherent things built into their game that make it so guys aren't recognizable, like you said. Uh, baseball players seem to, well, a lot of them are international. Um, and baseball is dealing with a lot of the same problems that hockey deals with. It's harder to build superstars when you're dealing with foreign players because they they can't be presented in the ways that the American players are presented. And it's nothing against them. It's not their fault. It's just the world of marketing and how things are done in the United States. But basketball is the one sport that's foolproof for that. They don't have anything holding back guys from being personalities. The league encourages them to be individuals on their social media and to stick out. And, they, and they've been better at building their superstars uh, probably since the 80s than the NFL. And that's something the NFL's never been able to overcome. That's something hockey's never been able to overcome. Uh, baseball has game issues. Uh, with younger audiences that gives them that problem, but they never really had that problem before. And baseball's also more of a team. There's a lot more guys on a baseball team than there is a basketball team. So there's reasons why the NBA players stick out, and the game uses that to its advantage to build itself up. And the Bulls are absolutely instrumental in that, and Michael Jordan is absolutely instrumental in that. Yeah, that, that's why that was a great side topic, because it's like this This is the evolution of exactly what you're talking about to, to present day. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, just to, to get us back on track, because there's a lot to cover in these two episodes, uh, you had kind of mentioned when we were talking about the Pacer series, which would lead into 
of course, the mailman himself, Carl Malone, and John Stockton led Utah Jazz and the rivalry with the Bulls that they had, which is fully covered in this. Um, the first thing of note I would think to bring up, hey, Ed, is, of course, the infamous flu game, which I learned a lot more about it. Um, you know, just, just my knowledge, I thought that he was just sick and that sort of thing. They go into a lot more detail to the point where they interview his trainer that was his good friend and that dude that's uh, just his like best friend and, and uh, I guess they call him his quote-unquote assistant. Um, and they give their account of that night where Jordan got real hungry in their hotel room uh, kind of late at night. And they called all these places and they couldn't find anywhere. They finally settled on this pizza place, ordered a pizza, and they said it was kind of weird because like a pizza was delivered by like – five dudes or something like that and yep. the guy even said like what, what pizza gets delivered by five guys and lo and behold jordan got food poison supposedly uh food poisoning from this pizza so it's yep. almost like now the, the flu pizza game you know it's really weird too because i read something uh, there was a story of uh, somebody tracked down the guy who delivered the pizza and they talked to him about it. Of course. He, the guy even said that he was like I, it's funny because i made the pizza myself i was actually a bulls fan and I did that so no one else would mess with it. Um, he said it wasn't five people. It was only two. It was me and another guy. Like, I I basically made the pizza, and I was going to deliver it because I knew who it was going to. Or he thought there's a possibility that it might be going to him. So he took the pizza, with, and he said there was another guy that came with him because he's like, well, I'm not going to be a dick about it. Like, you know, you obviously want to come. Like, you know, it's fine. Um, gave him the pizza. And then said that he heard all this. But then the, the person brought this up. It was a pizza hut. And he ordered a thin crust pizza. And they were like, isn't it possibility that the pepperoni was just probably old on the fucking pizza? Right, um, yeah. He gave him bad mushrooms or some shit. Yeah, like who, who the fuck knows, you know? So, I mean, it's it's a story. But at the same time, I think it's one of them stories that just Michael Jordan kind of likes to have fun with people on. And I don't have a yeah. problem with it one way or another because the bottom line is there was something wrong with him in that game, and he, he played. He was definitely sick. Yeah, yeah he was definitely fucked line. up. Exactly. And it it's really a game that I remember very well because, again, being a Knicks fan and not a Bulls fan, I absolutely hated the Utah Jazz. I did not like that team. I did not like Carl Malone. Um, I respect John Stockton, but I always thought Carl Malone was one of the biggest crybaby fucking assholes, and who was a dirty player too. Um, so I never liked him and I did not want that team to win. So I was happy to watch that the Bulls beat them. And that's a game I remember vividly watching because it was like, fuck, like the Bulls are going to lose this goddamn game because Jordan's sick. But that's not how it turned out. Because again, as we say, this is what makes Jordan Jordan. He never faltered. Never. No matter what was going on. Even when Pippen. He struggles a little bit. Then he goes. The Pippen injury is another great thing because I knew that Pippen had a hurt back in that game, but I didn't know that Pippen was basically a decoy the entire game. He was fucked up, and I remember him playing badly, but it was like they knew before he ever took the, the, the court that he was a non-factor. He was just going to be on the court to be a distraction. Yeah, that's what Michael said to him. You're, you're better on the court than you are in the training room, like even if you're a decoy. Um, and, and just to wrap up, uh to not lose my point, because um, one of the big things with the end of the flu game was the infamous push off. Because I remember us is is in like junior high or whatever at the time, or we would have been in high school. No, this and like is high everybody's school, de- yeah. debating it and like rewatching it, dude. 
I always thought like it's obvious that he did push him, but even like Bob Costas says, because Jordan's one thing, Jordan's going to be biased or just remember how Jordan remembers it. Yep. But even Bob Costas made the point that like Russell was kind of falling, falling that way anyway. Yep. And when you watch it, you see like he he said like it'd, it'd be something a major D, you know, showing you your seat would touch you as you know, and that that was kind of true. Like yep. I never saw that that side of me. No, I totally agree, man. It's. Uh... And that's the way I felt at the time. I really didn't feel like it was a push-off. And it's it's weird, too, because you know how many games I saw the Utah Jazz win because of they did something like that? And then they're going to bitch about that thing? Like, it's stupid oh, because course. it's like, dude, do you know how many mistakes you made in a series that got to seven games? Yep. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you know, th- there was one game, though, that was wild. And that, I think it was game four, but it was the game in Chicago where Utah just beat the brakes off them. They beat yep. the Bulls' ass, and it was crazy. But, you know, then look what happened during the other series with the Jazz where they played where the Jazz scored the lowest amount a team's ever scored in the playoffs. They only scored 54 points in a game. The Bulls beat them by, I think, like 30-some points that game. So, you know, it was really a weird two-year series that, frankly, Utah probably didn't deserve to be there. They got They beat better teams. Um, so it just made the Bulls, uh, you know, trek to six even easier during that second run because those two, they played better team. The Bulls played better teams coming out of the East both years uh, than Utah, in my opinion. So it was what it was, but like, but there's still a lot of stuff in there that's just really amazing in these games. And you knew that the Bulls were going to win. Like, I don't think any of us at the time were really worried that the Bulls were going to lose like you know what I mean it was pretty much a foregone conclusion um which is crazy because you didn't realize it at the time but like you really wouldn't see stuff like that anymore you know we saw the the winningest team single season regular season winningest team of all time and the the Golden State Warriors losing the finals so that didn't happen to the Bulls period nope and and just to segue into something that may have thrown you off to think maybe this can affect them was and, and, and those listeners here on the what's real podcast obviously know hey ed and i's um love of professional wrestling but somebody missed practice for a certain reason so how about that one hey ed yeah dennis rodman would go on to miss a practice during the finals to be on wcw monday nitro uh, with the NWO, which <laughs> I remember at the time, <laughs> too. It's the goofiest shit, even going back yeah. and watching it. Well, because not only is he, like, going to be standing there with Hogan doing promos, fine, but he actually got, like, somewhat physical, like, yeah. DDP with a chair and shit. Like, anything can happen. Yep. You're in the fucking NBA Finals. Like, that, that will, that's something that will, that's one of those things, like, in 2020, something like that will never, ever happen. And you know what's wild, too? I remember this at the time, because, like, we said this, like, amongst our crew of friends and shit. Everybody in the world was shitting on Rodman for doing this. But it's like, dude, he got paid six figures to show up one night on Nitro and just act like a goof. Like, again, something people don't realize, he only made four and a half million dollars that year. Dennis Rodman's not a guy that was making $30 million every season, so like he was going to take opportunities like that to make extra money, and I don't blame him. No, for sure, and um, WCW made out too, just for like the publicity, obviously. You, that know, was, you got an a, a active starter from the finals on your show. 
Well, if you remember too, like once Mike Tyson was at WrestleMania, that's when the tables kind of turned on the Monday Night Wars for the ratings. But there was a time period where it switched back to WCW for a little bit, and that was during the Rodman shit. In the summer of 98, people were watching WCW again because it was getting a ton of publicity. It's when they did that whole thing with the NWO and DDP and Rodman and Malone and them on The Tonight Show. Like, they were, that Bulls team was huge. I mean, it was the biggest thing that year, probably. So, WCW kind of getting in bed with Rodman there and you know, by association with the Bulls and stuff, brought a lot of attention back to the company in a time period o- where they really over needed Over 20 it. years later, WCW is on this documentary. Yes. That's on ESPN getting ridiculous ratings and you have Hogan on there. Yeah, because it was a big, like in wrestling at the time, was huge. That The only other thing that year that was as big as, as the Bulls was pro wrestling. You know what else cracked me up? Hey, Ed, they show when um, Rodman comes back and they're at practice and he's like in the background and Zubaz, like ostracized. Yep. And you just hear Jordan like, Rodzilla, Rodzilla. <laughs> and then you you see something that's really amazing where Phil Jackson calls the whole team to the court and says how Rodman let them down. He's like, yeah. you know, we can't depend on him. He wasn't here when he was supposed to be. It's not right what he did. He should have at least told us. And it shows a lack of respect for his teammates. And I thought that was a really good thing that he did as a coach because, you know, look, Rodman was a wild card, but it's this is the reason why I like him because he would realize through people like Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan kind of like when he was being an asshole and then he would like tone it down and do his job. You know that's, what I mean? That's what I liked about it. Yeah, because he, he even says like they all knew I just had to do Dennis shit. But when I was on the court, I did my part. And we've covered that in past episodes. And this was no exception. He goes on and has a great game. Yep. He's rebounding out the ass. And it's funny, too, because they show the game. And I love this at the time. But there was the one game. I think it was game one or maybe game three in the series where Rodman went off. He had like 19 points or 20 points. Like he had a really good game. But they show him hitting like this 19 footer, and he, he's like running down the court on defense. And he, oh, does, he does the Jordan shrug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there was the one point where uh, he gets fouled, and Costas is on commentary, and he's saying, like, this is not the person that you want to be throwing free throws at this point. And he made both of them. Yeah, and shit like that. And I also like, too, the little video uh, clip that they show. And I remember this pretty well, too. But there's a moment where. Rodman and and Malone get tangled up like five times in a row where they're like falling on the and it looked like they were about to fist fight each other and they both get up and just smack each other on the ass and they're both kind of like laughing about it and it's that was all Bischoff like telling them like to do that probably it wouldn't surprise me but I thought that was a really good moment I remember it happening at the time and kind of getting a good laugh out of it and it's kind of shows you too that it's like yeah these dudes are big tough dudes and they don't take anybody's shit but at the same time they kind of respect being in a game where another dude's like playing hard and trying to get in there and you know i just thought that was really cool i'm like yeah they kind of respect that out of each other that's what they want that they realize that that's what makes each other so good is playing against guys at that level exactly yep but this was great um the whole fucking series has been great this is really one of if not the best 
thing I've ever seen uh, relating to sports as far as documentaries and stuff like that go. Um, the whole series is a winner. It's been a great trip back, uh, especially without sports right now, to get to go back and watch this. Um, I absolutely loved every moment of it. It was fantastic. And it's just really something that, uh, you know, I, I look forward to revisiting it again someday. But, man, this really was, it's what the doctor ordered for us right now, dealing with everything that we're dealing with, to kind of give us something that's been captivating over this many weeks. Yeah, they already announced it's going to be on Netflix in July, so it's going to be streaming as early as July, just like that. I was talking a bit about that last week to try to put off on it, you know, to really get in the mood again. Uh, but it, it was. It was one of my favorite docuseries of all time. I love sports docs, um, and this one's always going to be so up there because uh, an ongoing theme with us, and I'll talk to myself personally, has been the nostalgia factor. Uh, from the way that they put this together with the music that we kept alluding to and just the storytelling and the way they would do the timeline stuff that took me uh, admittedly a little bit to get used to, but I ended up really liking that and the way they would tell the story, you know, all leading up to the, the crescendo with the, the sixth championship win in the 98 season. And uh, yeah, that, that was the last part of it that was, would be worth noting um, just to, to finalize my take on it. Hey Ed was um, how Jordan and, and, uh, Phil Jackson and them talk about why the attempt for seven never happened. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was pretty interesting that all of them said that they were down to do it. They're like, why not? Why not go for seven? Could we have done it? Maybe, maybe not, but it would have been worth going for. But the, uh, the owner, you know, he said something on there. There was just a lot to do with the rebuilding decision and things like that. So, you know, that's always fun to, to kind of think of the, the what could have been, too. You know, they both bring up good points, I think, because I think Jordan brought up the good point, like you think we all wouldn't come back. And then I do see the other point, and it it, it is true. Like, they, I read something where they, they said, like, you know, it was a, a thing from Jerry Krause's book where he said, you know, like Luke Longley priced himself out. Like, he was already banged up, and we had to sit him a lot during the season because of injuries. And we knew he was going to get a big contract that we just couldn't match. So we would have had to go out and get a bunch of new role players to come in here and play. And as I mentioned earlier, they did need specific kinds of role players that weren't always easy to get. Um, you know, and teams weren't really willing to deal with the Bulls at the time. You know what I mean? They just won three straight championships, so teams aren't trying to make you know give them assets and make them better. Um, so you know, I do see both sides to it. Um, you know, but it was definitely a huge moment for basketball and a huge moment for pop culture, um, and it's a huge moment for us now going back to rewatch this. So I, I've really enjoyed it. It's like like we've said, you know, ad nauseum how good this is, but it's really one of the best things I've ever seen done on sports, and uh, it's cool too because. Just to let you guys know something we're planning on doing. Uh, if you've been watching this, you've seen that they're doing 30 for 30s now every Sunday night. Uh, and they're starting up uh, this upcoming Sunday with the 30 for 30 on Lance Armstrong. It's just called Lance, and they're going to have part one on. We will be talking about those as well because we've really enjoyed these. And I know me and Jared both uh, enjoy the 30 for 30 series, so we figured why not. Uh, I love sports, man. Um, ESPN does great documentaries and, and we've said in the past as well that the 30 for 30s even like ones that i wasn't interested in the topic or maybe knew nothing about the topic i've never been disappointed you know it's one of those situations where maybe like the worst one to me is still good so 
Uh, definitely looking forward to those, especially with the topics they had that, that we had briefed on last week with Lance Armstrong, Bruce Lee, and uh, Sosa and McGuire. Definitely yep. looking forward to those. So th- they kind of will swoop right in. And without sports, we, ha- we had our run with the last dance, and now we go right with the um, – the 30 for 30s for the next few weeks. So looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Should be a blast. So that's pretty much it for the last dance, guys. I hope you enjoyed doing this as much as we enjoyed or listening to this as much as we enjoyed doing them and watching the show. Um, but we got to take a quick commercial break. And when we do, it's time for Thursday Night Prime with Beyond the Law. So stick with us, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Bayview Entertainment LLC is a full-service media company committed to acquire, develop, produce, market, and distribute audiovisual content. For over 15 years, Bayview made its name by being dedicated to releasing only the best programs in each category from some of the most trusted names in the field. Bayview's disc programming can be found throughout the country at all online suppliers plus fine brick-and-mortar retailers, as well as streaming video on demand at all major digital retailers and platforms. Bayview is honored to partner with Churchill Pictures LLC for the worldwide release of The Unsung, the newest feature film from Churchill Pictures. Follow details about The Unsung's upcoming release at churchillpictures.com and bayviewentertainment.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's that time once again for Thursday Night Prime, where me and the Jay get down and dirty on some serious B-action uh, style movies that we really enjoy doing here on the show. Uh, the movie we're doing this week is from 1993. It's called Beyond the Law, starring Charlie Sheen as a undercover agent uh, gone biker uh, who's trying to infiltrate a biker gang and basically, uh, you know, bring the whole operation down. And this is a movie that I've seen a handful of times uh, through the years. It was something that used to play on HBO. Um, It was also a staple of the video store at the time. And it's been a long time since I watched it, so I figured it'd be appropriate here on the show. And, uh, boy, this one is something else. For a whole myriad (laughs) of reasons, okay? First off, in 1993... Uh, Charlie Sheen was not like a, his career wasn't faltering. He was doing just that, Yeah, fine. that's a great call to mention first and foremost. Because nowadays that's kind of common. You know, you have Liam Neeson and straight to TV movies or whatever, you know, whatever the particular actor. But at this time, th- this, like he was in his prime, like A-list Hollywood career. So there's no doubt to me that this, that his appearance in this movie was most likely fueled by cocaine. Uh, I, I'm not even trying to be funny. I seriously think that's exactly what this is because when you watch the movie, there's a whole bunch of scenes here that just look like a coked up Charlie Sheen going ape shit, uh, which is funny, but there's also, he's not the only star here either. Uh, Linda Fiorentino is in this. Michael Madsen's in this. Uh, Courtney B. Vance is in this. Rip Torn uh, has a small role in this as well. And it has a bunch of other character actors that you would definitely recognize. Um, Leon Rippey. Yeah, Leon Rippey's another one. So uh, basically what you have here is Dan Saxon, played by Charlie Sheen, is an undercover cop who infiltrates a biker gang to nail the scum behind a drug smuggling operation. In order to maintain the trust of the gang's leader, he must commit ever more dangerous and heinous crimes. Just how far beyond the law will Saxon go? Um, Well, I can tell you. 
there's points in this movie. Well, let's just uh, the opening scene is pretty hilarious. Now, I didn't remember a lot of this. Okay, the opening scene. Yeah, stuff, I was the same boat. I was like, okay, I don't really remember this as much, but I was kind of blown away to see Rip Torn immediately because uh, I didn't even remember him being in the movie as one of Sheen's fellow cops. Um, it's kind of cool because the opening scene he goes, it's like there's a this Native American man who has a gun and like there's a standoff with the police and Sheen goes and just you know cools the whole thing off and uh, one day when Sheen's working he sees a biker gang roll into town and it's pretty much made inevitable immediately that the local cops are on the take. Uh, there's almost a fight between Sheen and his commanding officer where he is then fired. Sheen's kind of like on a bender on his own where one day Courtney B. Vance shows up uh, uh, working for the attorney's uh, attorney general's office offering him a job to go undercover, um, which is very weird because, uh, you know, you'd think that, well, he came to him because he would be really good for the job, right? So one of the first things that we see with Charlie Sheen is him going undercover and looking more and more copish, um, and it's not getting him anywhere. And he's it doesn't seem like it's working out. And then he gets shit-faced in a bar, has a conversation with a guy who he doesn't know from anyone, and immediately tells him that he's an undercover narcotics agent. The guy just randomly chooses to help him become good at it because he always wanted to be a cop. I always wanted to be a police officer myself. And it's hilarious because then there's like this mechanic guy who teaches Sheen everything about motorcycles in a montage, which is pretty fucking funny. Um, <laughs> and it's just, and there's a, a scene where they're both shit faced and he gives him a deputy badge that he somehow had in his car. Um, but it, it's pretty hilarious how this works out. And then. He once he's ready, this guy introduces him to the biker gang. And this is pretty funny immediately, and I'll give you a quote here, um, where the guy says, is the Pope a Cadillac? I don't know if you caught that line in the movie, but it's like, you know, like, look, hey, do you like to get fucked up? And it's like, yeah, is the Pope Catholic? Nope. He says, is the Pope a Cadillac? <laughs> so this is somebody writing dialogue that thinks they're way more clever than they probably are. Yeah, like I'm so witty. And and just real quick, hey, just to, we'll get past this part, but like where he's doing the the training of him. Two two of my bullet points were the one he he like um you know puts together Charlie Sheen's like undercover character, and he's like you know what's your name gonna be. And he's just like Sid, you know. Like, but it's even they just funnier. Did that so goofy because he's like, he's like Sid, and he's like, like Sydney. He's like, no, <laughs> yeah. like fucking like, no, Sid. Sid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, um, you know, you gotta come up with a, a, a biker name, you know. So they, they come up with the the snake name. What is it? The um, fuck me and my brain fart. I forget. What was the, I, yeah, like yeah, the goddamn snakes, like. Fuck, but anyway, that's besides the point. I'm, I'm, you know, talking about that part was funny where he's like putting together his character, and then he's like, like they're almost there, and he's like, "Man, you're not, you're not smelly or dirty." I was enough. waiting for you to bring. So this he, up. Ta- he takes, he takes his Charlie Sheen's jacket out and just starts pissing on it, and he goes, "There, now you're <laughs> dirty wants- enough." And he's like, "Son of a <laughs> yeah. bitch!" Like, and, and then the last thing is, uh, 
He's like, and you're not crazy enough either. So he ends up taking Charlie Sheen on this high-speed chase and starts shooting at him and shit. <laughs> and then, like, it all ends with, like, Sheen just going nuts on him and, like, almost killing him. He's like, okay, you're crazy enough now. Yeah, it's it's the weirdest dynamic between two characters I've ever seen in a movie, maybe ever. Where it's like, he doesn't know him from anyone, approaches him in a bar, ends up offering to train him to be an undercover because he always wanted to be a cop, then goes overzealous training him to be a biker, and he gets to the point where he almost kills him. But they're friends. Like, it's the weirdest dynamic ever. It's funny, and I liked it, but it's just so fucking goofy. Yeah. And then great. they take us to a biker wedding, which is, of course, as goofy as could possibly be, where we're introduced to the character the character that Michael Madsen plays called Blood, and one of my favorite characters in the movie because in every scene he's either just a piece of shit or a total asshole, and that's Oatmeal. Yeah. The fat biker oatmeal. dude. This is Oatmeal. Um, yeah. But then, of course, Sheen has to prove himself as uh, loyal to the bikers, which includes a scene where Blood takes his character to a redneck bar and challenges him to drive his bike into it and they're like it's like a suicide mission then sheen drives his bike through the bar and into a fucking jukebox for no reason which was pretty amazing and then we get treated to the biker versus redneck bar fight great yeah it's it's another one of those ones man it's you know again we're, we're talking b movies but it's it's so well paced like it was such an easy watch. Like even even my wife was like doing her schoolwork or whatever when I was because I just started. She came in. She's like, "Well, I'm just doing schoolwork anyway. Like keep it on, you know." And she like got sucked into it, you know, because because it is. It's well paced. Like it goes from like introducing Shane. He's like this clean cut cop. The shit happens. This goofball trains him. Like you said, it's the weirdest relationship, but it's hilarious. And then the next thing you know, Shane just goes off the fucking chain, almost like Serpico type shit, where he like is like worse than the the bikers yeah he's getting into his role too much (laughs) not in the movie dances all i mean his character like he gets into his undercover role a little too much yeah he goes overboard but it's okay and then there's the whole introduction with him and this photographer played by linda fiorentino who is it's pretty clear early on that she's just put in the movie to be a love interest for him um but that leads me to a the awkward-ass sex scene in this movie that is just brutally cringeworthy. Yeah. And, dude, okay, here's the one thing I don't remember in this movie at all. It makes no sense because, okay, so there's the love scene. Then the next day, or the next scene, is a scene where Sheen's in the kitchen making cookies or some shit, and now Linda Fiorentino has a daughter all of a sudden, in the scene where he's speaking, the it sounds like us doing our fake French accents. The yeah, scene, he's being a maitre d'. It's terrible. It makes no fucking sense in the movie at all. I was dying. Yeah, he's cooking like pancake or like a smoothie or something. I can't even remember. It's like some weird ass shit he's putting together. And he like goes in the whole like major D from a French restaurant to the little girl. Yeah, and it's and Florentino's like giggling. And it's not even good. 
He's like, now we shall oh, make terrible. the cookies over here yeah, on this My favorite part. You like pancakes? It, it sounds like it's because it sounded like us doing this. But when he puts the shit behind yeah. his back and he's like, pick a hand. <laughs> yeah. I was dying. And in, in real life, he's like coked out of his mind. Like, dude, I might get an Oscar for this. Well, it's like I just imagine them showing up on scene to do a, a scene, and he's like demanding to do something to show his acting versatility, and he's coked yeah, out Yeah, like of I, his I need to do an accent. This. It's like, well, but it doesn't fit in the script, and we didn't. Uh, don't worry about it. Just uh, bring in Linda and, uh, and Bob, the producer's daughter, and I'll just wing it. And they, they filmed a 20-minute scene of him just being like, let me tell you, little girl, I make the best yeah. cookies and smoothies or whatever in the fuck I'm making here. It, oh. She's like, <laughs> it, Well, the funny, she takes a drink of this shit, and she's like, it's good. Like, I, yeah. I, dude, I was dying during this. And then, okay, so basically... Oh, they they run the course of the story out where like you know he he's getting more and more shit on these guys, and you know spoiler alert, um, he brings down the entire gang, okay. And there's a fucking hilarious scene at the end of this where it's like a montage where there's music playing, and it doesn't fit the scene at all, but it just shows all these bikers getting arrested at gunpoint. As Sheen walks away from Courtney Vance, stripping off all of his biker paraphernalia and just leaving it in the dust. <laughs> Into the desert. It's so fucking yeah. funny. And then it's like, then you get the, the wording at the end telling you this is a true story. Dan Saxon is actually an extra in the film somewhere. They don't tell you. Yeah, where. I forgot that. That was hilarious. And I found out something super interesting that I didn't know about this. So. I went through nefarious means to watch this movie because I didn't have a copy, or at least I don't think I have a copy of it, other than on VHS, which I didn't have the ability to watch. So I end up found finding an alternate version of this movie I didn't even know existed. Uh, it had a different title. It's called Fixing the Shadow. And apparently this is the uncut version of the movie. And the, the footage I looked up, uh, this was apparently only available commercially in Germany. And the, the only difference is there's a scene in the movie where they go and rob a liquor store, basically. And it creates a little conflict between Michael Madsen's character, Blood, and Dan Saxon, the character that Sheen plays, because they just inherently murder this woman for no reason. And she just gets shot, and it's like a normal scene. But in this version, it's a little bit extended, so there's a lot more blood and guts in it. Um, which the movie doesn't need at all, but just, you know, I saw this movie probably in like 1995 or so on HBO, so I'd been aware of it for a long time, and I never knew of, heard of, or even thought about an existing extended version of this, and I found it completely on accident, uh, because I did notice that when I was watching at the beginning, it did have the title credit of Fixing the Shadow, but it just didn't really sit, like, I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, I don't remember that. Um, but I don't remember yeah, so the weird. Beyond the Law title sequence either. So, you know, it was interesting to find that out just because of, you know, watching it for the show. Yeah, crazy. And uh, as always with the Thursday Night Prime segment, the um, tagline is, as usual, horrific and uncreative. <laughs> some men are meant to stand. Some men are meant to stand between good and evil. And um, the better one is on the poster because it says beyond the law on top, but then above that it says 
Charlie Sheen is beyond the law. But this this is a great Thursday night primer, man. It's it's um you know completely original HBO. Like we said, it was pretty rare for the time that Charlie Sheen was an A-list, um, you know, in the midst of his holy career actor and, and did a straight to HBO movie. Um, you know, of course, with the, the supporting cast, as, as we've been through, Linda Florentino, Michael Madsen was great as Blood, Courtney B. Vance, you know, some of the character actors, Leon Ripley as Virgil, who they also called Dildo. Which is hilarious. Um, Rip Torn, a, who that scene, is probably in his... Dude, the scene where he's, no, where he's like, you know, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a dildo is hilarious. <laughs> and then, and then like you were saying earlier, it all comes full circle because at first he's like training Sheen and pushing him too far or Sheen like almost kills him. Cause how far he pushed him. He's like, now you're ready. And then meanwhile, at, like towards the end, he like throws his badge at Sheen. Like I can't do this anymore, man. You're, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> I was just dying. I'm like, geez, now he's turning back on him. It's like this whole full-fledged thing. And, and yeah, that was like an underlying thing there, like being dead serious about it. He's like, man, I, I just don't like him calling me Dildo. And so, like, when they have their falling out, Charlie Sheen's walking away like, see you, Dildo. <laughs> it's so funny. It's just uh, this- classic, classic mid-'90s just schlock. But, yeah, for those listening, man, if you never saw it, Beyond the Law – uh, I think I saw it on like Stars or Showtime on demand, but like Ed said, you can track it down. Uh, but it's it's definitely a, a well paced, easy watch. Uh, another solid '90s action B movie. Absolutely, man. So I really enjoyed this one. Um, I definitely recommend it. Um, if you haven't seen it before, it's it's a scene to be beholden. Um, it's a really cool movie. I actually like the movie a lot, and, uh, th- yeah, and good, this man. this I think says it all. Um, this is, without a doubt in my mind, the best movie we've so far covered for Thursday Night Prime. And as you guys know, on our five-star uh, rating scale, I'm actually going to give this one four stars. Nice. I'm, I'm three and a half. Right on, man. So that's, you know, that's beyond the law. So hope you guys enjoyed, uh, you know, what we put down. We're going to have another episode next week, as we normally do. And uh, we didn't actually even talk about this because we're very well prepared. Um, but for next week, what the hell should we do, man? Uh, there's a lot of options. We we talked about you know hitting some of these initial ones with the mainstays of the Thursday Night Prime genre. Uh, we got Rothrock in there. We got Dawn the Dragon. We did Brandon Lee's. Uh, so maybe we should do. Um, Either Dudikoff or um, classic The J Brain Fart. What was the other dude? Oh, there's Andrew Stevens. There's fucking Andrew Stevens. That's who I was okay. thinking. Okay, you know what? Let so me see. yeah, we'll, we'll have to announce it on the um, on the Twitter, perhaps. Yeah, we could do that. Why not? I think I have a pretty good one in mind for him. So, uh, but yeah, check the Twitter, and you guys know if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that. Uh, at any time at what's real pod one again that's at what's real pod one so give us a follow we'll give you some announcements during the week to figure out what we're going to watch for thursday night prime but guaranteed next week we're going to have a brand new episode of thursday night prime for you and that's a promise so stay tuned guys we're going to take a quick commercial break when we come back we're going to do our normally our normal wrap up and of course 
there's no shortage of goofs in the world, so goofs are goofs. We'll be in the following segment. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Phoenix Granite Fabrication Incorporated, 50 Oak Road, Gibsonia, PA, 15044. Phone number 724-252-8995. At Phoenix, our goal is your happiness. It's as simple as that. We believe everyone should have the kitchen or bath they've always wanted. You've waited for what seems like a lifetime and have carefully planned it. It can be stressful making sure everything is just right. With that in mind, we will work with you to find the color and materials that work for you, functionality and aesthetically. We believe that you should understand how engineered stone and natural stones perform. We want you to have the beauty that lasts and lasts. It's what you deserve. We take pride in what we do, and there is nothing more rewarding than knowing what we create for you is lasting happiness. Give us a call, send us an email, or stop in to chat. We'll help you transform your kitchen or bath into a thing of beauty. That's Phoenix Granite Fabrication, 50 Oak Road, Gibsonia, PA, 15044. Phone number 724-252-8995. Again, that is 724-252-8995. Nine nine five, and we're back here on the show, everybody. We are winding down this week. We really appreciate you guys uh, sticking it out with us here on the show. Um, but you know, we uh, we thank you guys for listening. Also, real quick, if you guys have any comments, questions, concerns, you want to yell at us, tell us anything, uh, bitch at us, give us your life's problems, feel free to do so through email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. If you listen to us on iTunes, we really would appreciate a five-star review. Uh, that really helps the algorithm and helps get us in front of more eyes and ears, so that's definitely a good thing. And also, as we mentioned before we went to break, follow us on Twitter at whatsrealpod1. Again, that's whatsrealpod1. So the J, as I ask every week, what do we have on the goofs front? This one's funny because I was talking to you about this complete goof, and you were like, the J, no matter what, we do not drop this guy's name on our show ever. And I said, well, it's for the goofs or goofs segment. And did you hear what he did? You're like, yep, we're doing it. And it's one, six, nine, Takashi six, nine, one of the biggest goofs ever. And I'm all about the American dream. I'm all about an artist in their own style. But these are, this is like an example of a guy that just goes overboard with it. And I just think he's a complete jackass. And he was recently doing a prison stint. Um, Who knows the specifics, but there's, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that he snitched to, to get a much lesser prison sentence. I mean, he was looking at life in prison and he's already out. And the reason that he's on the GRG segment this week is because he went after, Hey, Ed and I's boy, one of our own, a man that represents Pittsburgh sports, the legend Snoop Dogg himself, Takashi six, nine, issues a warning or issued an accusation to Snoop Dogg saying that he snitched on Suge Knight and Snoop Dogg barked back and it's making six, nine, a complete goof for goof candidate this week. Cause how do you go after the Snoop Dogg? Yeah. I mean, rats are going to go after dogs. That's just how it happens, I guess. Um, this is also a difference in generations here, uh, because a lot of people don't really seem to have a problem with this dude. Um, but, you know, I guess I'm from the era where we didn't really like dudes that were just fucking rats. Um, 
you know, and it's not like me and the J are criminals here, you know, but it's just glorifying shitty rat behavior is pretty lousy. Um, the dude's music sucks, so I don't have any reason to ever give a fuck about any of that. Um, and that's, you know, pretty much just garbage. So, you know, it sucks. He's a goof. Um, do I think Snoop is a, is a snitch? No. Um, it's just random bullshit. This is the world we live in now where people just say fucking stupid shit for attention. And oddly enough, people give it to them. And, you know, I think that it's extremely appropriate because, you know, as you said, that's the exact conversation we had. I literally had no interest in bringing this fucking goof up on the show at all. But as I just said, this fucking goof kind of fits perfectly into this segment. So, yeah, it's uh, it's fully warranted in my book because he's a fucking goof, all right. Asshole. And I'm going to I'm going to end it with Snoop's quote because Snoop's the man and. He said, last time you said something, I ain't have time, but today I got time. You better get the fuck off my line. N-word. Rap boy, you really better leave me alone. I ain't the one. No way. Go on and do your shit. Get out of my way, bitch, you funky dog-headed rainbow head dog-head bitch. Yeah, you better leave the dog alone. Go find you a cat. Tom and Jerry shit. Fuck with the dog. Nothing nice, bitch. Rap boy. End quote. I think we've just inadvertently created our very first podcast character, a.k.a. <laughs> J-Dog over here, which is fucking hilarious, because there is going to be points in the podcast now, I think, where I'm just going to randomly be like, so J-Dog, what's your take on this? And that's where we're going to have you chime in like that, because seriously, we're, 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 we're missing that. So that and the unnamed Frenchman. The amazing French Canadians, we will be referring to them as from yeah. now on. Is now, anytime we just, like, let me tell you something. My name is Jacques Rousseau <laughs> here on the program. Cooking but, up from uh, But yeah, we're just doing fucking stupid voices and creating characters. So that's what happens in Goofs or Goofs. Yeah, there's too many Goofs. But Takeshi69, hopefully that'll be the one and done. And he'll never be mentioned on the show again. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so that's it for us this week, guys. We hope you really enjoyed the show. Uh, we really enjoyed sitting down and do it for you, as we do every week. Yeah, man, taking the show home as only the J-Doggy Dog can. Shout out to producer Cam, the wizard, the man behind the magic. Thanks for what you do producing the show, Cam. Love the show. Hey, Il, we do it our way. Sinatra shit every week. Love it. Always looking forward to it. To those that follow, man, we, we love your support. We appreciate it. Um, you know, start interacting with us, man. We're looking for, for emails and Twitters and whatever you call them. But, uh, but hit us up anytime. Much love to everybody. Stay healthy. You'll hear me next week. Right on the J. Thanks again to our producer, Cam, for the work he puts in on the show. Thanks to you, the J, for sitting down and chopping it up with me for a couple hours here on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I enjoy this every week. Thanks to everybody at home listening. We really appreciate all your support, and we really appreciate you guys taking the time out to sit down and listen with us. So that's it for us this week, guys. We'll see you next week on the program. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Happy birthday to Joey Ramone. See you next week. The real question is, what's real? What's real?